You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, friends. I hope you are doing well. Today on the Explorers podcast, we have an interview with Matt Rutherford, who I recently detailed his circumnavigation of the Americas. This is a long interview, and I want to thank Matt for his willingness to spend so much time chatting. We did this conversation in December of 2022. The interview touches on a lot of things, including the circumnavigation, plus all sorts of stories of Matt's life since then. The interview is pretty free-flowing. I had a bunch of questions for Matt, but he's a great talker and addressed most everything I wanted to talk about without me even asking. I want to stress that there are a ton of things in this conversation that I did not include in my telling of his journey, so you'll learn a bunch beyond the recent two-part series about the voyage. Please note that there are links related to Matt in the show notes, as well as on our website, explorerspodcast.com, so check those out if you want to learn more. Otherwise, here you go, my conversation with Matt Rutherford, the first person to ever sail solo, nonstop, around the Americas. Matt, thank you for doing this. This is awesome. Yeah, sure. No problem. Nice to nice to meet you. I'm honored to, uh, to do it. I don't do that many interviews, and I've never actually done what I'm going to do, which is tell a story about you. And then have an interview with you because all my people are mostly dead uh, right. that, I, that, that I cover. So this is really, really unique for me. And it's really cool. So again, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. I guess I'll start out. Have you heard any of the episodes of our show? Uh, yeah. So Nick, uh, who reached out to you, uh, would play some of the podcasts for me when we were working on the boat before we went to uh, Greenland. I had to build the boat over the last couple of years before I took it to Greenland. So it was one of, uh, yeah, one of several podcasts. And he mentioned reaching out to you about uh, doing this. And I was honestly a bit skeptical only because of, uh, well, I mean, the nature of some of these explorers you talk about. These are like absolute legends uh, within exploration. And I'm also alive, as you, you know, as you've mentioned, which is kind of peculiar. So, um, so yeah, so he reached out and, uh, and you got back and I was in Greenland at the time. So this kind of has been delayed and delayed and delayed just because I wasn't, um, in the country or really available. I was in the ocean, but yeah, I have heard it. You've obviously had a love of exploration out of history and things like that. Who are the people that really captured your interest over the years here? It was probably somewhat of a classic trajectory uh, starting with Shackleton, uh, and as a teenager, maybe I was about 17 or so, my grandfather gave me a book, I believe it was Catherine Alexander wrote it, uh, Endurance. Of course, there's been several books written about Shackleton, but that was sort of a, one of the definitive books. 
I also got into some mountaineering books, Into Thin Air was a John Krakauer book. But there was something about polar exploration in particular that just seemed unbelievably difficult and people really pushing themselves in some ways in a ridiculous manner, like when it comes to man hauling. I mean, man hauling is such a terrible idea. But, you know, the, the Brits thought it was made them, you know, made them more manly, I guess. So they didn't use dogs like Amundsen did. So, yeah, as I got more and more into uh, the explorers, it was really focused particularly on the, the polar explorers, let's say roughly 1800 to 1940-ish. Um, there is what they call the heroic age of exploration, uh, where people are trying to get to the North Pole and South Pole. Of course, there's people like Magellan and, you know, some of the pioneers of, of sailing that are just unbelievable stories because we knew so little about the world. And these guys were pushing off into the absolute unknown with no realization of scurvy, with no realization of the various diseases, viruses and things they could pick up along the way. And they still thought there was like goblins and things. You know, you look at old maps and I hear how they talk about like South America, for instance, there's supposed to be a race of giants where there were cyclopses. And people believed that back then. So, you know, there's definitely a span of, uh, of sailing related exploration that I'm a big fan of. There's also some of the pioneers of long distance single-handed sailing. A guy named Robin Knox Johnson was the first person to ever sail alone around the world non-stop single-handed in 1968. Uh, it was part of a race, the first ever race around the world. Bernard Moltissier was another guy involved in that. So yeah, I guess, you know, getting into sailing itself, uh, it was a combination of the polar explorers, the Amundsens, the Shackletons, they had a lot of good men with them. Combine that with the original long-distance single-handed sailors, you know, Knox Johnson, Moltissier, and, uh, it sort of led me to doing that circumnavigation of the Americas because these were heroes of mine. And I'll never be the sailor that Bernard Moltissier was. I mean, he was amazing. And I'm not trying to be Shackleton either. But the only way that I could really know how I stood next to these, these people I've idolized was to try to do something similar myself, which led to the nonstop single-handed circumnavigation of North and South America. You got interested in sailing and geography and history and so forth when you were a teenager in Ohio, and you had no ex sailing experience, correct? Uh, yeah, my my family are not sailors. They never owned a sailboat. I'm the only person on both sides of my family to ever own a sailboat. So what made you embrace sailing even before you had done it? And then once you started sailing, what made you just say, this is part of me. This is what I love. I am a person that's always had some need for adventure in my life. And when I was younger, a lot of those adventures were not very healthy adventures, getting in trouble and arrested and all that kind of stuff. And parallel to that, though, at the same time, I was starting to get more and more into hiking. Uh, I did a rim to rim in the Grand Canyon when I was 13 with my dad. Uh, I did a couple of month long trips in the wilderness um, as a teenager. And, um, I really, I mean, Ohio is not the prettiest, I mean, it's, it's fine, but it's not the prettiest place. It's very flat. Northeast Ohio in particular, you get to Southern Ohio, it gets pretty, but where I was from, it was just kind of flat and rust belt towns. And, you know, it's, it's so, 
I, I did fall in love with, with nature in a lot of ways and with just being out, you know, in the mountains or in the forests. And so it made sense to gravitate towards the ocean because the ocean is the ultimate wilderness, you know. I mean, in the woods, you can walk. You can't walk on the water, you're going to sink. In the woods, you might have mountains, but the mountains don't really move. Uh, ocean, you can have flat calm or you can have waves the size of mountains. Well, I mean, not Mount Everest, but, you know, they can... It's basically an area we're just not supposed to exist. You know, we are land-based creatures, and we were not meant to live in that environment. So it was kind of the most extreme very, you know, variation of wilderness that I could immerse myself in uh, on this planet. You know, the next step from the ocean is outer space, basically. And I don't have the money or technology to go to outer space. So I had to settle with the ocean. So you went with the ocean. And when you did your circumnavigation, you knew one of the big challenges would be the Northwest Passage. But with the Northwest Passage, you're going into polar area. And had you ever done that before? No, no, not at all. I mean, before that, I, I circumnavigated uh, the Americas. I, I sailed from Annapolis to Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, and back single-handed. And that was a two-year trip. And that was kind of normal. I mean, it was, wasn't normal, normal, but it was kind of cruising, you know, where you, you sail to a country. And if you, you like the place, you hang out for a while or the town or whatever it is. And so I sailed all over Ireland and England. Up in the, I did sail in the North Sea up around uh, uh, the Netherlands, about as far north as I got on that trip. But, you know, it's it was somewhat a more of a typical sailing uh, situation. The whole time I was sailing this area, you know, you meet other sailors, and I was alone on the boat. I want to talk to people, so I'm always trying to, like, go around the, the anchorage and uh, convince people to let me on their boat and so I can have somebody to talk to. You know, I'd usually point out a piece of equipment on their boat. I already knew the answer. Hey, how do you like that wind generator? I already knew the answer, you know, but I just, just try and have an opening line basically. And so I'll talk to these people and over and over again, I was talking about the Northwest Passage. And the funny thing is I'm sailing to Africa, you know, at this point, And they're like, you're sailing at, you're sailing to West Africa. Like, why are you talking about the Arctic? You know, but I had had sort of an obsession uh, by that point, a uh, pretty heavily with the polar explorers and the Northwest Passage was kind of like the holy grail of sailing. You know, I mean, Cape Horn is considered one of the most difficult places you can sail around. It's kind of the Mount Everest of sailing. And if that's the case, then the Northwest Passage would be K2. So I didn't know how I would get there. I didn't know when. I just knew that I really wanted to sail to the Arctic. Uh, I wanted to walk in the, in the footsteps of some of the, the great explorers who were there, you know, a hundred years before me or longer. And that's how that trip around America started. You know, it started with me wanting to go to the Arctic and then it grew from there. So when you did get to the Arctic, and I know you've read a bunch of stories and, and journals and things like that of some of these explorers. One of the things I think to a person that you read from, from these guys is just, they're stunned at how it's an alien landscape to them. And it's beautiful. It's terrible. It's it's a lot of different things. What was that experience when you suddenly were seeing office-sized icebergs and walls of ice and things like that? It is like sailing to another planet in a lot of ways. I mean, first off, you sail north 
until the sun stops setting. I mean, that takes some getting used to. The sun just goes around and around and around on the horizon uh, as you get, you know, far enough north. You know, icebergs are like nature's sculptures, really. Every iceberg is unique, and as they break apart, they kind of keep reshaping themselves. It's a barren landscape. Now, on the trip around the Americas, I tried to stay away from land the best I could. Baffin Bay was frozen. I had to kind of stay closer to Greenland at one point, and you can look out in the distance and see the land, and there's no trees. There's no forests. As you get further north, there's just rocks and rocks with moss, and that's basically it. That's So it, it looks like, uh, and some of these cliffs and mountains look like something out of Lord of the Rings, like the mountains of Mordor, you know, where the bad guys lived. They were just really desolate, jagged, um, very beautiful in that way. You know, I mean, I, I love a white sandy beach and, and the beauty of the Caribbean, but something about the ends of our earth and just the, the rough nature of that landscape, it really makes you appreciate being on the boat. Because you look on the land, you're like, I don't know how I could ever, you know, survive over there. Uh, distances can become hard to gauge. Uh, the scale of everything gets thrown off. So, like this year, we were in Greenland and we're in these fjords, and some of these mountains around us were three thousand feet tall. And I was pointing. Different scientists were coming and going from the boat, and it kind of became this game to see who could actually figure out like how tall the mountains were. And most people were saying, you know, 300 meter, you know, roughly a thousand feet. They just, they couldn't believe that these things were as big as they were. Everything loses, loses scale basically. So anyways, it's a, it's an odd environment. You hear other explorers talking about how big things look little from a distance. Little things look big. Um, the ice can kind of play with your mind. Now, in those cases, these guys were walking on the ice. They had proper sleep deprivation and exhaustion, which I'm sure played into it as I had later in the trip. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's unlike anywhere you've ever been. And I've never been there before. All I could do is read up on it. And very few people had sailed through the Northwest Passage. So there wasn't much information out there about it. And nobody had ever sailed around the Americas before. So there was zero information about how to exactly to piece that together. But yeah, it's gorgeous. You obviously know the story of John Franklin and, and the lost Franklin expedition, 100 and, 129 people dead. They turned to cannibalism to try to survive and did not. When you're sitting on your boat in a place like that and knowing you're following in the exact footsteps of someone like that, is that weird or is that just like, well, whatever? Oh, yeah, it's definitely... Um... I don't know if it's weird. It's kind of like uh, inspirational and uplifting in the moment, you know. It's uh, you just can't believe. So I took the route that Amundsen took, and it was a slightly different route than almost every sailboat that goes through it today, because they usually take somewhat of a shortcut through a little strait. And I did Peel Sound, which was uh, just a different way. It was the way he did it, but it was more ice. And there was a time north of King William Island where I could have turned right. And took Franklin's route. Uh, it was actually Victoria Strait, which is just north of the Queen Maud, is where they kind of got stuck. And then they drifted down through Queen Maud, where they, they eventually found the boats recently. I could have made it. I mean, that year, 2011, the year I went through, it didn't have ice anywhere near what Franklin saw or Amundsen saw. 2012 was actually the lowest ice record in the Northwest Passage. Every year, it's not necessarily less and less ice. I mean, if you look at a graph of the last 
30 years in the Northwest Passage, you will see a general decline of ice really all over the Arctic. But that doesn't mean that, like I was there in 2018 in the Northwest Passage doing research, and it was incredible heavy ice. Even the cruise ships uh, and other research, big research vessels couldn't get through. And they were actually getting stuck in ice or getting damaged by ice. A, a sailboat got crushed by the ice that year, completely crushed. The guy wound up on an ice floe, had to get rescued by helicopter after 11 hours of floating on the ice. So that year, I could have went there. I thought about it. I thought, man, it would be really cool to go Franklin's route and sail basically right over where they got locked at the ice. But I wanted to follow Amundsen's route. And, that, you know, they're, they're similar to each other. But um, And then looking at uh, Joa Haven, where Amundsen spent actually a couple of winters. I mean, I sailed close enough to it. I could look over and see it, I don't know, like a half mile or a quarter mile or something. There's a little settlement there now. And yeah, just staring at it, thinking, oh, I wonder where, you know, Amundsen was on the beach where he kept the boat, you know, and maybe it was right there, you know. And then Simpson Straits is right after that, which is a difficult area because of a lot of shifting. It's where you're going to run aground. If you can run aground anywhere, that's where you're going to run aground. The entire Northwest Passage was that way, where I felt kind of like a, like a kid in Disneyland, you know, just I was so excited to be up there walking in the footsteps of these explorers that I've, that I've idolized for years that it really kept my spirits up, you know, I mean, you're, you're cold, you're wet, you're living off of freeze-dried food, you've got a lot of reasons to potentially be uh, grumpy or, or, you know, have some negative feelings, but, you know, being that way is not going to give you, uh, you know, a hot slice of pizza and a cold beer and a nice shower. So a lot of it's attitude, and this is something a lot of the explorers understood, especially some of the best of them, people like Amundsen in particular, uh, you know, they, they kept their spirits up. They really appreciated the hardship. I know it sounds really weird, but Amundsen wrote about reading Franklin, who got trapped in the ice and all men, I believe it was 128 guys died, I think, or 129. And they had a spider monkey, too, for some reason. Um, but they, they, everybody perished on it. It was the worst loss of life of any expedition, uh, Arctic or Antarctic. And Amundsen would talk about how he wanted to suffer like Franklin. Now, he didn't want to suffer like Franklin in the sense of dying, obviously, but there is some aspect of explorers, you know, Shackleton, for instance, the guy knew that walking across Antarctica was going to be brutally difficult. He had already been up there once before on the Nimrod expedition, where they got very close to the South Pole. So there's an aspect of, of sort of me against the nature, against the hardship, pushing yourself, seeing what, what you're capable of, and these people thrive in this environment, which is the opposite of what people should do in theory. And I'm one of those people that the worse the situation becomes, the more difficult it is, the more I feel alive. And it's, I don't know, it's a weird situation in some ways uh, because you're always chasing it. It can become an addiction. You got to be careful of exploration because, I mean, that does because you look at these guys, they keep going back. Shackleton went back until eventually he unfortunately had a heart attack on South Georgia Island and they buried him there. But he was going back to Antarctica even after getting his boat crushed in the ice and spending two years floating around and going through an unbelievably difficult situation. He gets back to land and within a few months he starts feeling the itch. You know, I got to get back out there. I got to get back to Antarctica. I got to, you know. So anyways, I'm, I, I understand that because I, I feel the same things. And that's part of the reason, reason I created an ocean research organization that does climate research in the Arctic. It's because it allows me to keep going back to the Arctic 
and, but doing it in a way that's not just about me and my own exploits, you know, doing it in a way that, that we collect science, you know, doing it sort of in the name of climate research. But yeah, I know it's a very long uh, answer there, but but ultimately it was inspirational to think about the many explorers who came before me. Many of these explorers uh, end up dying because they do go back into the breach once more and they can't function very well in society. You mentioned Shackleton. I mean, James Cook, Scott, everyone goes back, these guys. And so it's interesting you talk about that for yourself, about how you've actually been able to channel your energies in such a good way, because it becomes their identity, I think, in, in a way, and they just can't live in a normal society after experiencing something like that. Yeah, I, I definitely struggle uh, with life on land. And uh, I spend a lot of my time, you know, like we get back from this expedition this year. It was about a five month trip. It was a long, difficult trip this year. We have a new vessel, a much bigger boat, but it was a maiden voyage. So we're working out some kinks and one of my crew hit a big iceberg. It screwed up our propeller in the middle of nowhere. So it was a difficult, successful in the end. We got a lot of great scientific data. Anyways, you get back from this trip. You know, after about two, three days of sitting on anchor in front of Annapolis, you know, you have the old scotch and a cigar celebration. Woo, we're back, you know, sort of thing. But it doesn't take long before you're like, all right, well, we got to get back next year. Let's start planning for next year. Uh, And so most of my time on land is really me just trying to get back out there again. There's a lot of logistics and science. We have a a scientist that works for the organization that I created. So I'm not the scientist. But... uh, Long-distance single-handed sailing can be very similar to this. The people who go out to sea alone and sail around the world to do these... I know people that just keep going back out to sea alone over and over and over because it has become part of their identity because they have gotten to the point where they can't function really on land. And it's the same thing. They come back and they start getting the itch and it doesn't take very long. Um, So yeah, I think absolutely being an explorer uh, is part of your identity. And the pace of life and the 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 variation of 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 what life is when you're on expedition especially like a a difficult expedition i mean how do you reproduce that on land like how can you even come close you know so uh it is the you know something we've seen with a lot of explorers they have very difficult uh situations back at home you know frank wild shackleton's right hand man is a great example of one of these guys he, he was on five polar expeditions. He was awarded uh, two medals and four bars. I don't know what exactly that means, but I know only two people in the history of England has ever been awarded that by the English uh, uh, government. So super uh, prestigious explorer. Shackleton passes away. He ends up trying to be a farmer in South Africa. Uh, he ends up becoming a bit of an alcoholic. He gets divorced. He he remarries again, but you know he he never he did like ten different jobs in the last ten years of his life. He was and they were all like working at uh, you know the counter of a depot selling boots to miners, you know some stuff like that. And then he died of pneumonia in his sixties. But he's a guy that just never was really able to to piece life back together again uh, when sort of his exploring days ended. Tom Crean he went to Ireland and opened a pub. The South Pole Inn. That seems like a pretty good strategy. I mean, open up a pub in a little town in Ireland. All the community is going to be there. You're always going to have a lot of influx. You're still your own boss, you know, which is a nice thing. 
Um, Tom Crean ended up dying of appendicitis, which now you can cure quite easily. Uh, but, you know, it was a different time. But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's interesting not just to look at the what these explorers accomplished exploring, but there's a sort of fascinating backdrop of, of what happens when they're on land and what happens when they kind of quit being an explorer. I mean, Amundsen died trying to save an explorer. He didn't even really like the guy that much. They had gotten into a, a lot of arguments, but it was another adventure. You know, Amundsen was always up for the next adventure. So I don't know. I mean, you basically you do it till till you can't anymore. It's kind of one of these uh, lifelong situations. You talk about the difficulty of being on land after the exploration, after the adventure. What's the difficulty that you have when you come back? The easier part is probably I just don't need as much creature comforts and things as most people. I don't own much. I don't have I've got a great collection of first edition explorer books like i have shackled in first editions both both of his books um i've got a lot of that so i've got books i've got some turntables which back in the 1990s people used to spin records when i was a teenager so i still spin records you can't see them but i got some technique 1200s right behind me uh and i got a motorcycle so i've got like three things i don't really need much so it doesn't take a whole lot for me to to be comfortable on land in that sense uh the harder part i would say well, I guess the harder part comes out of the same thing in some ways. You know, there is a complete lack of financial security, which as you get older, you know, I'm 41 years old at this point, it starts to be more of an issue. You know, when you're 25, you can be broke and couch surfing and it's, you know, who cares? But um, it can be lonely a bit on land, however weird that sounds. You know, you spend, I spend so much time just working on a boat in a, alone in a boat yard or working in an office uh, this little office we have uh, alone, just trying to chase funding and, and stuff. And yeah, you don't really fit in in normal society. And I think that's where some of that comes from. When you talk about or think about loneliness, for instance, you're alone. I was alone in the ocean for 309 days uh, going around the Americas. Now, that's an awful long time to be alone. But loneliness in the ocean is different than loneliness on land. On land, you're surrounded by people. So it's an emotional version of loneliness where you're wondering, like, why am I alone or why, I don't know, why don't people want to hang out with me or whatever it is. In the ocean, there's nobody out there. So it's not an emotional version of loneliness for the most part. It's just a mental version. It's more like solitude as opposed to loneliness. So, yeah, I think life on land can be harder in those sort of ways. I don't know. Emotionally speaking, when you're on an expedition, whatever you're doing, you feel like you're accomplishing something too. You know, you have goals every day. Going around the Americas, I had goals like I'd have waypoints. I mean, there are arbitrary uh, latitude and longitude positions that I would just kind of put in front of me. But whatever. It's like, all right, we get 200 more miles and we get to this little goal and then we get the next little one. And, and you know, doing research is very similar. So, I just try to bury myself as much as I can into the next expedition and just stay focused on that. Too much downtime, you start thinking about all this stuff, you know. I'm 41, I'm broke, I'm, you know, I'm single, I'm, you know, alone all the time, you know. Um, and then you get on a boat and go to Greenland, and now I got seven to nine people on this boat. Now I can't get away from people. Now they're all over the place. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we have four sailors and four scientists on the boat. And uh, you're stuck with them sometimes for months. So, yeah, it's become a very interesting juxtaposition in my life right now. Uh, what time 
at sea has been like versus uh, back on land. I always remember uh, Meriwether Lewis, Lewis and Clark expedition spent three years, you know, going across the country and back. I know he struggled with mental illness and then later with alcohol and probably drug issues. But when he was on the expedition, that's where he shined. I think about him too sometimes, in particular to how he never wrote the book, you know. Uh, Thomas Jefferson tried to help him out and let him stay with him for a while. And I know he became like governor or something of a province or something near the end over by the Mississippi River. Was it like Kansas and Missouri or something in that area? St. Louis, maybe? Obviously, he didn't find happiness in, in that. I mean, he went through the He killed himself in the end. He shot himself and died relatively, I don't know, over a period of hours by the sounds of it. But I think about him in particular, too. I, I need to write the book. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I understand what, what he felt at some level, obviously not completely, but it's really interesting to me. And it's something we don't talk about that much. We talk about explorers and we talk about what they did, you know, while doing exploration. But there's a whole nother side, obviously, you can't always explore. And a lot of them really did struggle uh, on land. And some of them to the point of, you know, alcoholism and suicide. And I think people are just wired different, you know, at some level to do this sort of thing, which can be a, a, a strength and a weakness. I think I've kind of come to understand that a bit, covering so many different people, and especially more of your modern explorers in the last 200 years, because we have a lot more documentation and understanding of them. And we do see this. And you also have the growth of what I would call like the professional explorer in the sense of like Amundsen is probably like the great example of, of the early professional that was his job. He was an explorer. That's all he wanted to do. He was brilliant at it. I mean, he understood how to focus things and and so forth. But yeah, the I, I think I've seen so many, I've read so many stories now. It is uh, interesting to see what happens when they do come back from it all. And then what do you do next? And some people are okay. Some people aren't. And uh, so it's, it's fascinating. So did you ever think raising money for exploration was going to be such a big thing? And it is a huge thing in, in the course of history with explorers. They're always like chasing funding and you're doing the exact same thing. Do you feel like what's, <laughs> where did this come from? Yeah, it definitely, uh, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to make you think that, yes, it's going to be difficult. You know, I mean, you go back to the famous Christopher Columbus, you know, going to, to one royal family and getting rejected, going to another and uh, in Spain and, and saying, oh yeah, sure, we got you. And then the greats, Amundsen, even though Amundsen accomplished a lot of amazing things, he still struggled to, to fund expeditions. He had to mortgage his house at one point later on in life to fund one of his trips. So yeah, I also was, you know, maybe it's part of being an explorer that makes you a little more optimistic than you should be, you know, like you, you got to think like, oh yeah, I can climb Mount Everest. I could be the first guy to climb Mount Everest. Like you got to be pretty optimistic to start thinking this stuff. And so, yeah, you look at the funding, you're like, ah, you know, people, I'll raise the money. Uh, but yeah, it was way harder than I thought. That has been a theme, you know, I, same with the nonprofit. I thought when I get back from a trip around the Americas, it's going to be easier to raise money. And it, it wasn't, you know, it's, it took a decade for things to start getting even a little easier. But uh, yeah, it was it was pretty bad on, on the trip around the Americas in particular. And a part of it was because... It was a small boat. It was an old boat. I would have been happy to have a bigger, fancier boat. We just didn't know anybody that would give us a bigger, fancier boat. It's just we had what we had. You just got to make do with what you got. Geography isn't necessarily the strongest point uh, for people in the United States. And so just talking about the Northwest Passage 
trying to do fundraising for it, people would be like, where, what, what is this? Oh, it's above Canada. It's the, you know, the Arctic. And they, they, you know, it's just hard for them to even know what you're talking about. And then when you really explain it out, some people just think you're crazy. Like there's no way you're ever going to be able to do this. You're just going to die. This is like suicide or something. And so people are not going to fund it if they think you're crazy and, or are going to die. So yeah, it was, it was a, it was a series of failed attempts to raise funding and we did eke it out, but I did, you know, I did all the work on the boat myself. We didn't pay anybody to, to rebuild the boat. I had to rip the boat apart and rebuild it. It was a small boat, which did help financially because, you know, the smaller the boat, theoretically, the cheaper it is to outfit the boat. And um, I was able to find people here and there that did believe in it and believed in me. And the organization Crab helped considerably, not financially. And they told me right off the bat, because I was raising money for this organization that helps people with mental and physical disabilities go sailing. I was doing volunteer work for them, and I can explain that sort of story better in a minute, I guess. Because they they had a presence in Annapolis, I was, a, I was able to go to people and say, I'm trying to raise money for this organization. Everybody had heard of it. People liked it. So I, I think a lot of the support I got was really more about trying to support Crab and this fundraiser I was trying to do uh, than the actual expedition itself. But whatever, who cares? I mean, the money is the money. But yeah, it's surprisingly difficult. And I think things have changed a bit now. You know, this is 2010. The rise of like YouTube sailors, uh, social media being more powerful. People are going a different way for fundraising now than they were, you know, 12 years ago. I think it's much more internet-based, social media-based, YouTube-based uh, uh, stuff. But yeah, we had very poor funding on that trip. You mentioned Scotch whiskey several times in conversations and in things. And I know you said you saved some Highland Park 15, which is a very fine Scotch, when you went around Cape Horn. What was your favorite whiskeys that you brought along uh, that you saved for special moments? Well, because we didn't have much money... You know, it was mostly pretty low quality, I hate to admit. And some people gave me some stuff, but I remember one guy gave me like a, a half, you know, a big handle of this stuff called Clan McGregor, which is like the lowest of the bottom shelf, you know, comes in a plastic bottle, just horrible stuff. But if you've been out in the ocean long enough, I mean, it starts tasting decent, you know. I had some extremely strong kind of like white lightning sort of style stuff, really, really strong stuff. And that I could dilute with water to kind of make it last, you know, to kind of get more mileage out of it. So, I mean, it was, and I had a bottle of Screech, which somebody threw at me, which is um, rum from Newfoundland, which doesn't sound very good, but uh, actually, you know, it's not bad. Uh, but by far, because we just didn't have much money, by far, the Highland Park, and that was a bottle that me and my dad got right before I left. And we actually sat down and drank about half the bottle together uh, in a kind of a celebration thing. And I saw the bottle the next morning sitting there in a hotel room. You know, I asked my dad, hey, mind if I take this? He's like, sure. So I took it and I stuck it deep in the boat and held on to it. And I drank it on Christmas, which I was near Cape Horn. I had been in, in the ocean for probably 180, 190 days, somewhere in that range. Uh, yeah, it was unbelievably good. I mean, you're living off of freeze-dried food all the time. Your taste buds are just looking for anything, uh, you know, at that point. And I did have a bottle of wine that I saved for uh, Cape Horn itself. This bottle of wine had been across the Atlantic multiple times. I had had it for years. This 
uh, single-hander English guy bought it in the Mar Marques in the Caribbean, sailed it alone to Europe. He gave it to me. I sailed it down to Africa, alone across the Atlantic, back up to Annapolis. He told me, save this for a special occasion. I'm sure he had no idea how long I was going to save it. And then I sailed all the way around the Americas down to Cape Horn. I drank it on, you know, day 216 or something. And even though the wine had gone through a wide variation of temperatures, which is supposed to not be good, I thought it was great. But it could have been anything at that point. Like, you know, you, you get away from uh, tasty foods and, you know, all I had was water and coffee to drink. And I ran out of cream. I ran out of sugar. I ran out of powder creamer. So now you just, and I, I'm doing cowboy coffee. So you get like strong, bitter coffee and water. And that's all you basically tasted for, you know, a couple hundred days. I read uh, you start you started leaking diesel fuel, so you took diesel and put it into anything you could, and you actually had to pour out some of your booze bottles, but you couldn't quite do it for like the the Highland Park. Am I correct? Yeah, that happened earlier on. The, the boat only had a thirteen gallon fuel tank, a little tiny thing, and that wasn't going to do much. And I knew looking into the Northwest Passage that you could have long periods of light wind. You basically have about 3,000 miles you have to travel, and you've got about six weeks to do it. And if you don't do it in six weeks, you can get stuck there. Come October 1st, basically, the, the ice is going to come back, and if you're not out of there, you're stuck. And then you become like a polar bear popsicle or, or whatever. It's really, really, really bad, right? So I knew that I needed to be able to, to maintain motion, you know, when there was no wind, and I, we didn't have much money. This guy who ran a marina, who was associated with the organization that I was raising money for, said, well, hey, my dad has like this 20-year-old fuel bladder he used to use when he went fishing far offshore. You know, he'd fill it up to give him extra mileage so he could go further offshore to, to catch fish. I was like, well, I'll take it. Sure. You know, whatever. So I put it in the middle of, my, of the inside of my boat and tied it down. But this middle of the inside of the boat is where you would walk, basically. I mean, the boat didn't have much headroom. Like, I couldn't walk inside the boat standing upright because maybe there was five foot seven or five foot eight headroom and I'm five foot eleven. But regardless, because the whole center of the, of the floor is taken up with this fuel bladder, you're on your hands and knees jumping from one seating area to the next for about the first hundred days. Now, I put about a hundred gallons of diesel in that fuel bladder and uh, roughly, maybe 80-some gallons, but with the 13 in a tank, I had about 100 gallons of diesel. And in some ways, it's almost as important as water uh, to drink because you know that you absolutely need this fuel to get you through the Northwest Passage. I didn't have a heater on the boat. And you might think, well, why in the world didn't you have a heater? You're going to the Arctic. Well, how are you going to power that heater? How are you going to make heat? Well, obviously, electric heater is not an option because you have a very finite amount of power on a boat like that. Propane, there are propane heaters, but you burn through propane very quickly. And I didn't have a propane stove. I had an alcohol stove, so whatever, wouldn't have made sense. Diesel, uh, you know, my, my big research boat, we have diesel heaters and they work great. But I didn't want to share uh, the diesel with a heating source because it was too important to have that for propulsion to get me through the ice, to get me through those sections where I might have five, six days in a row without even a breath of air. So I have this fuel bladder. It's in a boat. I'm in Baffin Bay coming up towards Lancaster Sound. It's blowing maybe 35, 40 knots. It's a gale. It's blowing hard. It's foggy 
like a type of fog that it's hard to imagine. You know, you think that like New England has fog or Maine has fog. I mean, this fog, you can barely see the front of your boat. Uh, and it's also very wet. You know, it's not just fog. It's an extremely moist fog. So anyways, I was sitting out there and I, it had been blowing for, I don't know, a couple of days and I didn't have a radar. I would have loved to have had a radar. I would have loved to have had a big fancy boat. But again, sometimes you just got to make do with what you got. Now, the waves, when they crash up against an iceberg, they kind of make a sound like thunder, you know, like a wave's crashing up against a cliff. So if you hear thunder in the fog off to your left, maybe you want to go right. But there are pieces that fall off the bergs that are the size of like a school bus or a, a shipping container that can be almost completely submerged. Those are a big hazard because they're all over the place and you're not going to see them until you're almost right on top of them, especially in the fog and in the wind. Now, when you have 35, 40 knots of wind, let's say call it roughly 44 miles an hour or something in that range, uh, it creates waves. These waves break and they make what's called white caps. White caps are when the tops of the waves kind of roll and churn and it looks white. So you're sitting, well, you're standing in the cockpit with a tiller in one hand, just getting blasted by this waves. And I had all this big suit. I look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. I had something called a Mustang survival suit, this big giant suit on with all these layers. Every layer you got, you got on basically. And your fingers and toes get numb quite a bit. So you're dancing around in the cockpit, trying to kick your feet around, trying to get the blood you know, flowing back in there. And as you stand there, you're dodging pieces of ice that, that come out of the fog, basically right in front of you. And you're sitting there like, is it a white cap? Is it a top of a little berg? Is it a white cap? It's like, oh, it's a berg, you know, and then you, you quickly go to port or starboard, you know, to left or right and sail around this thing. So that was sort of the situation in Baffin Bay. And, and that had been a situation at that point for a couple of days. Obviously, that's sort of the, the worst of the worst when you have all those forces combined simultaneously. And now you have sleep deprivation and everything else. You can't even go inside to, to, to go to the bathroom. You got to drink coffee, you got to eat, you got to do whatever else. It's hard just to leave the, the helm. And so I had something called a wind vane, and it does steer the boat for you. So most of that trip around the Americas, it's a mechanical gear. The one I had was made by a company called Monitor. It's very interesting because it's non-electrical. Theoretically, uh, they could have had it 2,000 years ago. You know, it's it's not, I don't, I'm not saying they did, but it's a mechanical technology that that uses wind direction and the speed of the boat through the water to steer the boat for you. So anyways, every once in a while I could connect this wind vane. I could, when it, when I thought the coast was clear, right. And I could run down and try to do whatever I need to do, go to the bathroom or, or try to make a cup of coffee real quick and warm up, try to have a quick meal. So anyways, I go down to do that. Right. And I see on the floor, there's a puddle of diesel and I'm like, Oh my God, what's this? And the fuel bladder was leaking out of the seams, you know, where they kind of, where the bladder comes together. And I'm like, oh my God, I need this fuel. And it was leaking out the corners. And I saw a corner it was leaking out of. So the idea was, well, if I can get that, that corner up in the air, then it, it will be above the, so the water line, so to speak, above the fuel and it won't leak. But I had to empty some of the bladder in order to do that. So I was filling up everything I could uh, with, with uh, diesel uh, my water jugs, they all got filled with diesel. So for the rest of the trip, I did not have a water jug. I had a Nalgene bottle. That was my water tank. Um, it, was, it wasn't it was great, to say the least. A lot of the time with the water, because I'd have a manual water maker, 
Uh, I pumped it over 406,000 times, by the way. That's just what you do. You pump it 1,500 times a day, roughly. So anyways, I'm down there and, and, you know, you got like, I don't know, the seas are probably somewhere in the 15-foot range. And so you're getting knocked around by seas, you're flying along, and in the chaos of trying to save my diesel, I kind of lost track of the fact that I'm flying down waves surrounded by icebergs and fog. And I'm getting diesel everywhere too, right? You're transferring. I had like a drill with like this little pump you stick at the end of a cordless drill and had a little hose and you could kind of stick it in there and me with a little drill and as long as you had battery power in your cordless drill and try to transfer out. That's how I was, but I was getting it everywhere. You know, I was getting on my bed. It was diesel on my sleeping bag, diesel on my pillow. I'm covered in diesel. It was just a total mess. And I get one side up in the air where the leak is, and then I notice it's leaking out the other side. So now I got to get that up in the air. So right around that time, I look up, and out the corner of my eye, I had a couple of windows, you know, in the cabin, and I see this wall of ice. And I'm kind of like, what? what is that? Like, it doesn't register for a split second. And then I realize, oh my God, I'm about to hit an iceberg. And so I come flying out, and there's lines connected to the tiller that connect to this steering gear, this wind vane. So I'm frantically untying these lines, and I'm maybe like two wave trains from this, this berg. And it's a monster berg. I mean, hundreds of feet tall. God knows how deep it was. I mean, the thing was massive. It was like an office building. And at the base of the iceberg, it's like somebody took an ice cream scoop, like a giant ice cream scoop, and just scooped out the base. And that's because waves have been pounding in there, making this half-circular sort of shape. And you can see the waves come into this area and explode and just fly. You know, mist was flying 100 feet in the air and raining down on the boat. And you realize that really soon, a wave is going to pick the boat up. It's going to throw you into that, that concave area that's been taken, and you're just going to blow up. The force will just blow the boat up. So at the last second, basically the last wave, I was able to turn the boat up into the wind and fight my way around this berg. But the problem, you get to the other side of the berg, and then you go through the debris field, because these big bergs make little bergs. They fall off. And now you're like in a minefield of little bergs just everywhere. And of course, you're covered in diesel. You're, I wasn't dressed completely appropriately, because I was down below moving diesel. So you're sitting out there without your gloves on. Your hands are getting numb, holding the tiller. You're dodging ice. I hadn't slept much in a couple of days, to say the least. I'd probably been up at that point for at least 36 hours. Luckily, I was younger. You know, I was 30 years old at the time. And uh, you can deal with that better, I guess, <laughs> as, you, as you're younger. But that was a particularly... I did save the fuel. You know, I was able to get both sides up. I didn't get killed by an iceberg, obviously. But that was an extremely sketchy situation. But that story is what Baffin Bay is like. And you're, you're not even in the Northwest Passage yet. You're not, you haven't even gotten there. You're just trying to get there, and uh, but Baffin Bay could be considered an, a, a Baffin Sea. I mean, bay is kind of a generic term that they use for different bodies of water, and a bay can be something like San Francisco Bay or, or smaller. Baffin Bay is massive. You know, it is something like seven or eight hundred miles, probably north to south, and it's it's hundreds of miles east to west. So it's it waves can get very big. It has its own sort of weather that can be, you know, created between the Canadian Arctic and Greenland. And all those big giant glaciers that are in Greenland are popping off, making, you know, iceberg babies, basically, making these massive bergs. And they all wind up in Baffin Bay. So you're out there with all of them, basically. So it was extremely difficult. I just, you know, I, I really, 
like I like said in that email, like uh, uh, thinking you might die like soon is a really good motivator to keep you awake. So I was never, I was exhausted in a, in a sleep deprivation manner. The way I dealt with sleep deprivation, by the way, was uh, I, I figured that my brain was only moving at half speed. So I tried to move my body at half speed. I tried to do everything kind of slowly and with a purpose. So I, you know, don't rush things, don't go too fast and just kind of work at the same pace as your brain is. Cause you're, you know, and I would, uh, I didn't see things. I would hear things. That was the way, I don't know, that my brain dealt with it. So you're in the fog and you're in Baffin Bay. You don't have to be in a gale. You know, there's just a lot of fog. Let's just say it's a normal day in the fog sailing around, around in lighter conditions. I would hear these noises, these talking. It's kind of like if you went to a really cheap hotel and the TV was on in the room next door, you couldn't quite make out what they're saying, but you know the TV's on. You can hear the TV's on. It's a cheap hotel. The walls are thin. You can hear it. It was like that, where I could like hear people talking in the fog. I couldn't quite make out what they were saying, but I knew they were there, but I knew they weren't there because of course they weren't there. It was odd. I was hearing a lot of things that weren't there. But you learn to have fun with it, ultimately. You know, I mean, that's all you can do in these in these circumstances. I mean, being miserable is not going to change it. So try to have fun. So I'd like, I was up there singing Christmas carols. You know, Santa Claus lives up there. And I know it's the summertime, but, you know, just trying to have fun with it. And yeah, you know, it was, like I like I said, I was I was very excited. I was, I was looking forward to the Northwest Passage. I really didn't know if I was going to make it through. Like, you know, you got this whole entire circumnavigation of North and South America. So you got to leave the Chesapeake Bay. You got to go north between Canada and Greenland through Baffin Bay at the top of, of that area, then turn left, go through this Canadian Arctic archipelago, the Northwest Passage, around the entire state of Alaska, which means the entire Bering Sea, down the Pacific about 10,000 miles to get to Cape Horn at the bottom of South America, which is one of the deadliest bodies of water on Earth, and then get around it and go all the way back up the Atlantic to the Chesapeake Bay. There's doldrums. There's all sorts of crazy stuff you have to deal with. I couldn't really think that far because I didn't know if I'd make it through the Northwest Passage, let alone down the Bering Sea or down around Cape Horn. Uh, But I was still very excited. It was something that was both scary and somewhat terrifying and exhilarating, which is like like we talked about earlier. It's that explorer mindset where terror and, and exhilaration kind of start becoming one thing. You know, the good and the bad kind of blur together. You said to me that the Northwest Passage was the most dangerous time with the sleep deprivation, with the ice and all that kind of thing. But I know there's a couple other incidents that were really, really dangerous. One was getting swamped in the Bering Sea and then going around Cape Horn. Can you talk about both those incidents and anything else that was really just, really could have been just really, just ended everything? Yeah, the Bering Sea had some of those. So obviously the Northwest Passage, like we mentioned, just getting to it was really difficult. And then once you're there, pack ice becomes the problem more than icebergs and, and running, hitting rocks and, and, and it's uncharted for the most part and all that. So you get through all that difficulty and you get into the Bering Sea, you come through the, the Bering Straits, where that whole pinch point between the United States and Russia, and then you enter, that is the beginning of the Bering Sea. And people have seen Deadliest Catch, the the TV show. People know that the Bering Sea can be phenomenally bad weather. And you're getting into the fall 
at this point because you know now you're getting into September, late September, October, and uh, the weather is deteriorating rapidly uh, in that area. So it was basically one storm after the next after the next, um, and you get somewhat used to it, but. You know, you definitely get knocked around. I mean, I had a time in a Bering Sea where it was in a bad storm, and I was t- I was lashing my mainsail down because uh, it was blowing so hard. All I needed was the jib, which is the front sail, which I could make very small. You know, it was like the size of a beach towel at that point. You know, I made it really small because uh, it was blowing so hard. You almost didn't need any sail. And a wave hit and threw me over the boom. Uh, and off the side of the boat, and you know, my butt was basically in water. I was holding on to the something called lifelines, which are wires on either side of the boat that you can kind of hold you in a bit. But that sort of thing happened a bunch of times through the trip, where you know, some wave would come out of the darkness at night and hit you blindsided and throw you across the boat, and you almost fall off the side, you know. But in the Bering Sea, I guess the worst situation was in the sort of southern Bering Sea or closer down there, and there is an area that I didn't know existed called the Mixmaster. The Mixmaster is a local fisherman name for this area where several strong currents converge. And it's not really something you would know if you weren't a local fisherman. Well, I ended up sailing basically right into it in a storm, and when you have wind and current, particularly when the wind goes one way and the current goes the other way, it generates a sea state which is like a like you know like a, a washing machine you know if you can imagine opening up your washing machine and looking at the how those waves are going to be and if you were a boat the size of a quarter and you dropped it into your washing machine it's just going to get pulverized so waves are coming from they start coming from all different directions and this is when you get rogue waves this is sort of the classic rogue wave scenario a rogue wave is a wave that's at least twice as big as the waves around it and that's what happened so I was in probably 20 foot seas sailing along, and I was doing okay, and I'm inside the boat, and I'm starting to wonder, what what the heck is going on around here? Like, the waves are getting really crazy. And then I hear a noise that sounds like a, I don't know, like a freight train or jet engine or something along those lines, and I'm, what the world is that? So I jump up, and I look out the window, and I see what looked like a, a moving waterfall. It didn't look like a wave. It looked like a waterfall was coming at me, and I couldn't see the top of this wave I have no idea how big it was. All I saw was this giant waterfall. And of course, when it hit me, it hit me from the, a, a different angle, right on the side of the boat. And it ended up flipping the boat upside down. And so now you're, you're upside down in your boat, and everything that's not bolted down is landed on top of you. So you're like piled underneath all sorts of gear and stuff, and water's coming in. Uh, luckily, back in the 1960s, when they designed this sailboat, and it was a Scandinavian design. It's called an Alban Vega 27. You know, and the Scandinavians don't play around when they design boats. And they didn't design it for comfort. I mean, it wasn't a very necessarily comfortable boat, but they designed it for seaworthiness. So the boat went upside down, but it came back up quickly. And boats have something called a keel, which is more or less a fin underwater. And in the bottom of this fin is ballast, is a whole bunch of weight. And back in the day, they used to have a higher percentage of weight. You know, sometimes as much as 50% of the weight of the vessel would be in lead ballast at the bottom of this this fin below your boat. So if you flip the boat upside down, that fin is now in the air, and that counterweight is up, you know, as high up as as it goes. So basically, it it flips the boat back around again. Unlike a powerboat, powerboats don't have that option. They roll upside down, it's over. 
So the boat came back around. Uh, there was some damage, but nothing terrible. It more freaked me out more than anything else, you know. I had some wiring catch on fire later that day because uh, some wiring got wet. You know, some salt water got into some places that normally it wouldn't just because the boat was upside down. So I had to deal with that in the middle of the night. So yeah, that was that definitely shook me uh, for a while. Uh, Cape Horn, I had, you know, just bad storms down there. And you can get, you know, 30-foot waves and things like that. You have basically this giant section of the Pacific Ocean where storms can build and build and build and then they just slam into southern South America, the, the you know, the Chilean archipelago, Cape Horn. And if you look at Cape Horn, there's an Antarctic peninsula that comes up uh, about 600 miles. So the closest you can get to Antarctica from land outside of Antarctica is South America. You stand on Cape Horn, Antarctica is 600 miles south of you. 600 miles sounds like a big distance, but when you start getting into the open ocean, it, it's it's a pinch point. So you got all this current there at Cape Horn. You got these massive storms. They get funneled into this pinch point between South America and Antarctica. And it just becomes some of the most unbelievably terrible uh, waters that are on planet Earth. I got tossed in a storm. I mean, I got tossed in a lot of storms, but and I did break some ribs. I had a uh, there's a piece of woodwork. You got the companion way. Companion way is where you walk in and out of the sailboat. And on either sides, I had some wood trim. And that trim is what keeps the slides in place. These these teak slides you put in there. It's kind of like closing the door, basically. And they protruded up a couple of inches. It was, I guess, kind of bad design. I don't know. They never expected somebody to catch it with their ribs. But I got thrown in such a way that this wood came between my ribs with my body coming down on it. And it broke the wood off, which was good, I guess. I mean, it's that way it didn't like, you know, had it not broken, it would have been worse of an injury. But I, I actually broke the wood with my ribs. It's kind of hard to describe in a way that you can visualize, but it it, I mean, it sucked. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. And I've had broken ribs before. So, I mean, it's like, you know, it's there and it's, it's you know, whatever. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, uh, I only gave myself two options to quit. That was catastrophic injury to myself or catastrophic injury to the vessel. So, you know, if, if I lose my mast and my rudder, then I can't sail. If I break both of my arms, then I can't sail. But this was not, this sucked. It hurt, but it, it wasn't enough to, to stop me or to, to give myself an excuse to quit. I mean, quitting was like the worst thing I could possibly think of. I mean, it was worse than dying in many ways because uh, I was just so determined to, to, to accomplish this. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you get that. I mean, Cape Horn, you get just, you know, you have waves that like the whole boat basically goes underwater, you know, because <laughs> you just submerge you. But you know, whatever, eventually you get past it and then, you, you know, you get into the Atlantic and things calm down a bit as you go up the South Atlantic. I did have a situation off the Amazon. I was about maybe, well, I passed the Amazon River about a hundred miles offshore. I was heading sort of towards the Caribbean because uh, I was going to follow the line of islands up the Caribbean, uh, and then from there shoot up to the, the East Coast. This is a route that I've done a bunch of times before that, because I've been delivering boats to the Caribbean for a long time, and, and at this point I've probably done 10 trips or something. So it was kind of familiar waters once I got over there, but it's still a couple thousand miles away. So anyways, I'm off French Guiana, I'm sort of heading over towards Trinidad, kind of, and it's a night with very light winds, 
And my engine broke in the Pacific. I don't know when it broke, but it, it didn't really matter. I used most of my fuel in the Northwest Passage, as I explained, just in those days with light winds. And so you're sitting out there and it's, I wake up at like two in the morning or something like that because I have to go to the bathroom and, and I kind of stumble out into the cockpit and I'm kind of wiping the sleep out of my eyes. And I look and I see this red and green light towering overhead. Now those red and green lights are the navigation lights on sail, on sailboats, on freighters, on any boat. They all have those lights. And I realize, oh my God, I'm about to get hit by like a thousand foot freighter. And because it was a, a moonlit night, these freighters have these bulbs uh, just forward of it, the freighter, right below the waterline. And this, this it's, I mean, they're big. They're the size of, I don't know, they're probably 40, 50 feet. Um, and I could see the water breaking over it in the moonlight and just knowing that when that hits the boat, it's over. So I, I had very little time. I had like a minute maybe. And I turned the boat and it, everything happened so slow. You know, you're like, come on, come on, come on, because there was no wind. You know, the wind was very light. And I got, I don't know how far, maybe 50 feet or something from that boat when it passed. And the, the wave uh, created by the boat was big enough that it turned me around 180 degrees when it hit me. It spun me around. And then this big wall of steel is going by, you know, the from the freighter right next to the boat. And I'm yelling up there, yelling and cussing and swearing at them. Ah! And then I realized that nobody knows I'm there. They, they never saw me. Uh, they could have blew me into oblivion. They'd have had no idea. I'd have scratched their paint like, you know, five inches and they would have blew me into oblivion. And so I just, I stopped yelling at them. So I'm like, this is, you're, stop being an idiot. Nobody, nobody can hear you. Uh, I didn't sleep very well after that. There is something called an AIS, a device that tells you where shipping traffic is. And it can give you a, a proximity alarm that would wake you up in the event of a freighter is about to hit you so you can maneuver ahead of time. That had broke on the trip. And I, I broke somewhere probably in the North Pacific. I'm not sure exactly. But everything was breaking. My VHF was broke, so I, I couldn't talk to freighters. I tried to talk to a freighter in the South Atlantic. It sounded like, I don't know, whales dying. Like my, you know, my VHF was making terrible noises. Almost everything on the boat broke by the time I got back. It was one of these things where the, the, the boat is almost falling apart around you. But it was a really long, difficult trip, and it was a 40-year-old, 27-foot boat, and we didn't have the money before I left to get a lot of new gear. So a lot of the gear was old gear that other people had used or that I had used on previous trips, and I had already crossed the Atlantic a couple times with it and, and beat stuff up. So that was, a, that was a difficult one. And at the end, I almost got shipwrecked in sight of the finish line. Uh, which would have been really bad. I was day 308. I'm sailing to the mouth, the mouth of the Chesapeake. Uh, there's a, something called a Ch Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. The, when I go through the bridge tunnel, the the, the tunnel part, um, there's a north and south. This were freighters and navy vessels coming in out of the Chesapeake, and mine was the south. Well, when I go through there, my incoming line will go over my outgoing line. And then I have drawn the circle, more or less, you know, the oval, whatever you want to call it, and I have sailed around the Americas. I was going to make my first landfall in Annapolis, meaning I'm not going to get off the boat to Annapolis. But Annapolis is 120 miles up the bay. I mean, technically speaking, the trip is over and I've completed it when my one line goes over my other line, which is right there. So anyways, I'm, I'm sitting there. I can see the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel like a few miles off in the distance. And the wind dies. And, of course, my motor has been broke for a long time. So I'm just sitting there bobbing around. 
and a boat who had been following the trip, a little sailboat, because I had this uh, satellite tracking device on my boat so people could follow the expedition. It was, it was a red dot, which then they made a film called Red Dot on the Ocean about that trip uh, documentary, which is on Amazon and PBS and I'm sure YouTube. Anyways, these guys come out and uh, they throw me a six pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon and like a gas station sandwich. Now, Pabst Blue Ribbon is not the greatest beer, but at the time, it was like Don Perignon 44, you know? It was like the greatest thing I've ever had. And same with this little gas station sandwich, you know? It was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I'm sitting there, and I'm drinking my beer, and I'm eating my sandwich, and unfortunately, there was a lot of northerly winds in the northern half of the Chesapeake, and when that when that happens, it moves a lot of the water to the south. You get a lot of flooding in the south, and... and um, it just ended up pushing me backwards, kind of dumped a bunch of water out with the tide, and it pushed me backwards towards Virginia Beach, and then it got dark, and you could hear the breaking waves on the beach in the darkness, and you know I'm throwing up every bit of sail with every little gust of wind, because the winds were still really light, just trying to fight all night uh, to stay away from those breaking waves, which would have shipwrecked me and the vessel on Virginia Beach within sight of the finish line. And you can imagine after 308 days and 27,000 miles, I mean, I'd have had to do the whole trip over again, and I don't think the boat would have made it. Luckily, when the sun came up in the morning, the wind piped up to about 25 uh, miles an hour, and I was able to tack my way, sail through the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, and officially became the first person to do a nonstop single-handed circumnavigation of the Americas. There's a number of other circumstances that happened during the trip that were also difficult, but those were sort of the prime, oh my God, I'm going to die situations. You did continue up to Annapolis where you got onto the dock. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's That was it. A few things about the, the voyage I want to ask. and One is, you named your boat St. Brendan. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, two reasons. The first reason, when the boat was donated, I was going to originally use what's called a, a Continental Folk Boat, which is a 25-foot sailboat, a European one. Uh, it was old. It was from the 1950s. It didn't have an engine. Uh, I thought maybe I could row through the Northwest Passage. It was a stupid idea. I'm certainly glad. I never would have been able to make it rowing, by the way. But I don't know. I was optimistic, and I was you know, a little ignorant at the time. So then someone said, well, hey, we got this 27-foot Alban Vega. Why don't you use that? These were people who had been donors of a crab for some years. They had like four or five little sailboats. And crab actually traded them a clean uh, little Catalina 22. So they traded. They got a different sailboat out of it. Well, this St. Brendan, or I'm sorry, the, the Alban Vega, uh, it was named Mammy. I guess Mammy was named after this guy's grandma or something. So I'm not sailing a boat named Mammy to the Arctic. Are you kidding me? And then, you know, St. Brendan is basically the embodiment of the impossible voyage. St. Brendan was a uh, monk, an Irish uh, monk that back in the year 600, as the legend goes, built a boat out of oak bark leather and cedar and sailed this leather cedar boat across the Atlantic sometime in the 600s and, uh, and then back again. The story of St. Brendan is kind of fantastical. They wind up on the back of a whale for a couple days. There's like flying creatures that come and pluck some guy off the boat. It's almost like Odysseus, you know, in the Odyssey, uh, the great Homer story, a little bit, and how fantastical it is. But there's stuff in the book 
that also like finding icebergs. There's enough in there that, and they went to the Faroes, then they went to Iceland, then they went across by Greenland to uh, Newfoundland. So this guy called Tim Severn in 1972 recreates this. He gets a boat, makes it out of oak bark leather with cedar, does the exact same tactics that they had. And he sailed it across the Atlantic on this route, proving that St. Brendan could very well have done this, that the first person to get to the Americas might not have been Vikings. It might have been this crazy Irish monk and his his monk crew back in the year 600. So anyways, it's it's the impossible voyage. And I wanted to, you know, sort of out of respect because what I was doing was considered an impossible voyage. So um, I, I named it after St. Brendan. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of this idea. I know we've kind of touched on it. How did this all start? And what was the, the biggest issues you had to actually get people to, to accept that you're going to do this? Yeah. So like I said, the very beginning of it, I mean, you could, I mean, you know, how far back it's, it's like saying the beginning of World War II was the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One. You know, I mean, how far back you want to go? I guess somewhat of the beginning was what I said earlier, when I'm sailing around in Europe, heading towards Africa, and I keep talking to people about the Northwest Passage and how much I wanted to sail the Northwest Passage. So the seed was already planted. And then I sailed over to the Caribbean. I was broke. I showed up in the Caribbean with like 20 bucks, because when I resupplied from West Africa, I spent all the money I had in Gambia and West Africa trying to, you know, have food to cross the Atlantic. So I show up in the Caribbean with no money. I go to Antigua. 20 bucks buys you like a beer and a burger and then you're broke. So then I went to the U.S. Virgin Islands where I could work without a work visa and got a job in some boat yard making 10 bucks an hour. But I ended up getting back to Annapolis and I read this local sailing magazine one day that that said that uh, there's this organization, CRAB, that helps people with mental and physical disabilities go sailing. And I had a little bit of money saved up. And so instead of getting a job, I've been a sailmaker and done rigging work, and I've worked in a lot of different parts of the marine industry. I didn't feel like going back to doing it right away. So I I said, you know what, I'm just going to do volunteer work for this nonprofit until I'm broke, and then I'll go get a job. So for uh, a few months, that's what I did. And I was painting the bottom of this boat, a little 24-foot boat that was donated that they were trying to sell. They could find volunteers to take like disabled children out sailing. That was pretty easy. 
but they couldn't find volunteers to replace a toilet in a boat or paint a boat. So that's what I was doing for them. So Don Backey, who was uh, paralyzed, who's in a wheelchair, he had this van, you know, that successful van that he drove around. And so he drives up and I'm painting the bottom of this boat. And I say, hey, Don, you know, that this got this continental folk boat over here. Why don't you let me take it up to, you know, the, the Northwest Passage and we'll try to raise some money for crab. And I thought maybe he would laugh at me. I don't know what he thought. I was being serious. And he looked at me and said, okay, let's, let's try it. And so, bam, it has begun. And so the idea started with the Northwest Passage. And then I was like, well, it would be nice to get the boat back to Annapolis. Like, what are you going to do when you get through the Northwest Passage? Then what are you going to do with the boat, you know? Now, Panama Canal is kind of expensive these days. So you might as well go around Cape Horn. No, in all seriousness, it, it, I realized that, that in 2009, there was a trip around the Americas funded by David Rockefeller. And it was on a 64-foot steel boat. Uh, I know some of the people on the boat personally. We developed friendships with some of them. But they stopped in like, you know, 50 different ports and all the rest. And so I saw that, you know, researching it. And I was like, well, you know, it'd be really interesting if somebody tried to do it nonstop. Now, people have been sailing around the world nonstop single-handed since 1968, as I mentioned, when Robin Knox Johnson became the first person to do that. And he was a hero of mine. So I thought, well, you know, it'd be really interesting because it's basically the same distance as sailing around the world. Sailing around the world is about 28,000 miles or so. This is about 27,000. Eh, why, why don't I try to, you know, give it a shot and see if I can be the first person to sail around the Americas nonstop single-handed. So the idea grew. It's kind of typical for me. Uh, one time I was going to go to Southeast Asia as like backpacker, and then I ended up riding a bicycle alone through Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia, and Thailand. Uh, my idea is I tend to get an idea, then I get comfortable with the idea, then I expand the idea, and then I expand it until I can't expand it anymore, and that's basically what happened with this trip. But it did present challenges because of just the lack of... I had done that, that Europe-Africa-Caribbean trip single-handed, right? So that's good. Like, I had proven I can sail alone across an ocean by myself. I had just come off that trip, you know, so it wasn't something that happened 20 years ago. And uh, I, that helped give me credibility that maybe this guy can actually do it because he has this experience sailing alone. But like I said before, the, the nature, just the extreme nature of the trip uh, made it very difficult for people, first off, to even wrap their mind around what I was even talking about doing. And second off, get the money. Like if you go, if I go to a bar, and maybe there's a, a cute bartender and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to impress her and I tell her, oh, I sailed around the Americas nonstop single-handed because I've tried this before, right, by the way. They look at you like like a deer in headlights, like what? Like they're like, OK, and they just walk away. You know, if you tell somebody you've sailed around the world, we've all seen a globe. We know what around the world basically, we don't know what sailing around the world nonstop single-handed means for the most part. That means you have to go into the Southern Ocean and go around the world underneath of, of all the continents except Antarctica. Obviously, you're above Antarctica. That's the only way you could do it, right? But uh, anyways, it's, it's just such a foreign concept to people to even picture what that means. And then once you, they do picture it, they think, you know, you're crazy, you're going to die. So I think the biggest challenge was just getting... I mean, just like any explorer, you know, it all comes down to funding and or any nonprofit for that matter. You know, it's it's all a battle to try to get funding, to try to get people to believe in you. 
try to get people believe in whatever you're doing, whatever your mission might be. And having that that nonprofit crab involved was very helpful because people wanted to see crab succeed and and I wanted to raise money for them and in the end we raised $120,000. Don Backey unfortunately passed away not long after I got back and that money got him through the transition uh to get another executive director. They had a really rocky period of time when Don passed away. The organization almost fell apart. Uh but that money got him through. They got a new executive director. They got a couple of them. It took a while. It took you know a couple of years to find the right executive director, and that was the, the hard part for them. And they've got this guy ever since who is amazing, and they actually are building the first in the entire country. They they bought a marina in Annapolis. They tore it down, and they are building a handicap accessible marina, and they're going to have their own marina. Like there, that's that's unheard of. There's not a, a a disability organization in the country that has their own marina dedicated specifically for this. So I'm really proud of of what they've been able to accomplish. Uh, this guy has taken the organization Crab to a whole nother level than Don Backey could ever have imagined. You know, he couldn't imagine having his own marina. And you know, I'm very grateful that I was able to help them uh, get through that that rough transition between the the founder, Don Backey, passing away and finding this other powerhouse of an executive director. Now, when you're doing 309 Days Around the Americas, you're on a small boat, you have have to judiciously select everything that you bring. What were, you know, the personal things that were the best decisions you made? And what were the things you missed? What was the things where you say like, oh man, I just wish I had brought this along? Well, I guess the the best thing, which also goes into the to another good bad story, one of the one of the best things you can have if you're going to be spending a long time alone are books. You know, books take no power. I, power was a big issue on this boat. I had a uh, Kindle and it had a bunch of books downloaded on it. In the just south of the Bering Sea, I go through the Aleutian Islands there, and you wind up in the North Pacific, and it's October. And there's these big giant storms that come across from Asia and slam into British Columbia. And there's, some of them are, are like hurricanes. I mean, they blow hurricane strength. So I'm doing my best to dodge these storms, but I'm still getting caught in part. Like you, you dodge the worst part, but the, the, you know, the outskirts are still really bad and you end up, they end up getting you. So I'm in one of these like outskirts of some major storm and it's probably 20 foot seas or something. And every once in a while, the wave a wave would pick the boat up because the boat was only five thousand pounds. That's very light for a uh, for a boat. It would pick the boat up and throw it, and it's like being inside of a snow globe or something. Oh, you just everything gets thrown around inside the boat. So I was reading the Kindle. I was reading a book about Vikings, and I felt quite manly reading my Viking book in the middle of a gale and waves crashing. And I got thrown across a boat and with the Kindle in my hand and broke the Kindle in half. So I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I got like 200 more days and, and I don't have anything to read. Like this is, this is horrible. I did have some paper, like, you know, regular books. But when I was in the Northwest Passage, because it's so wet with the fog, everything is wet inside the boat. So your sleeping bag is wet. Your pillow is wet. Your, your cabin top is dripping like a cave. It always drips in your eye or your mouth when you're trying to sleep. It's extremely wet. So you get mold, and then black mold starts attacking your clothing. It will also attack your books. 
So some of my books, I, I'll try to read them before they would get destroyed. By uh, Actually, there's a book called The Man Who Ate His Boots, which is about Franklin. And when I sailed through the Northwest Passage, I read the book about Franklin dying in the Northwest Passage. I thought it'd be kind of funny. But one time I watched the movie A Perfect Storm and A Really Bad Storm, because I thought that'd be funny too. You know, the, the irony. So anyways, so the Kindle breaks, right? And you're like, oh my God. And the next day I'm sitting there, my sister gave me this little iPod Touch, which was, you know, this is 2011. This is kind of like, basically like a, an iPhone that you can't talk to people on. And on this thing, I discovered, I didn't even realize, she had downloaded a Kindle app with about 10 books on it. It was nothing, you know, not a huge amount of books, but one of them was The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons, which is, you know, I don't know, a million pages long. So I spent the next couple of months reading it, you know, one sentence at a time on this little tiny, you know, handheld device. And thank God for Caligula and Caracalla and some of these crazy despots, because it's a dry book. I mean, it was written in 1776. This English guy wrote it. Very dry. And then you get to like Caligula and they're like, ooh, got some spice going on here. And, you know, then it gets dry again. And then like, all right, Caracalla, you know. So, um... Entertainment in the ocean is is quite underestimated. Luckily, I had a lot of music on that that iPod thing, and I'd listen to music every day. And I had Scrabble on it. I played a lot of Scrabble. I can't spell very well, but I'm really good at the game Scrabble because I played it every day, basically on this little thing going around the Americas. I don't. Know, you try not to think about what you miss in some ways, right? Because it's like you can't have it anyways, and all you're going to do is mess with yourself you know, thinking too much about, God, I, I wish I had this or wish I had that. A conversation would have been really, really nice. I mean, you really miss having somebody to talk to. A, a hot shower would have been amazing. You know, my shower was getting a bucket of salt water and dumping it over my head. And then, and then you soap up and you dump another two buckets over your head and you call it a day. Um, any fresh food, you know, because living off of freeze-dried food gets old. I mean, like salad. Like, there's no such thing as freeze-dried salad. It just doesn't exist. Like, a nice Caesar salad or something would have been amazing. But, you know, it's those are more like, you know, human and food more than items. Uh, it would have been nice to have some more cold-weather gear in the Arctic. I really didn't bring, especially pants. I left with very few pants. I didn't realize it. I got offshore, and I was like, holy smokes, I got almost no pants. I brought shorts, but I, I didn't bring enough pants. I ended up wearing all of my pants at once the whole time I was in the Northwest Passage. And one time I got wet, a wave hit me, and I, I went outside without my foul weather gear on, which is kind of like a protective waterproof gear. Got hit by a big wave, knocked the whole boat over. I grabbed onto the backstay, which is a wire that holds the, the back of the mast up. And uh, the boat went over, and I'm hanging from this wire, and I look down, and there's just ocean below me, you know, because the boat's hanging over so far. And then it comes back up, and... But anyways, all my pants got wet when that happened, and I had no dry pants to put on. So I would just have to wear my wet pants until they my body slowly dried them out. So I guess it would have been nice to have some more pants. But, you know, I didn't miss much, really. I mean, as far as that goes, I, I, I didn't think about it much. You know, you just kind of, you got to accept where you're at and accept this is the situation. When I sailed across the Atlantic the first time, I was out there for 34 days. The second time I sailed across the Atlantic, I was out there for 28 days. Both times, I was a guest. I was a visitor. I was crossing the ocean to a point of land. And even though I was out there a while, the ocean wasn't my home. 
When I spent 309 days alone in the ocean, I was no longer a visitor. I was a resident. I lived in the ocean. Land was not my home. The ocean was my home. And when you live with that mentality, land ceases to exist. After a couple of hundred days, I mean, you know that land is still there. But in some ways, it's it's almost, it's like being in outer space at that point. You know, you know the world is still out there, but it's, you're so disattached from it that, uh, that it's almost like it doesn't exist. So I was emotionally kind of like a, a horse, like I was emotionally like a horse with blinders, you know, like I was, I tried not to have high highs, so I wouldn't have low lows. My, my, instead of having a roller coaster of emotions, I was like the kiddie ride. I had, I, I was emotionally neutral. Uh, so when it comes to missing stuff or missing items or missing people, of course, you know, that happens, but it doesn't happen very intensely because you're purposely accepting, you know, this is your situation and embracing it. So it becomes your world. You went from, as you said, Alaska all the way to Cape Horn and you did not see land. Am I correct in between that time? Oh yeah, I was I was way way out in the middle of the ocean. The idea, the route, is to come through. I came through by Dutch Harbor, which is uh, that's where all the boats go in deadliest catch. That's the, it's the southern Bering Sea. So there's islands there, and I, I popped between a couple of islands. Went out into the Pacific. I was going to stay about 800 miles off of the west coast of the United States. There is a current, uh, Humboldt current, that I was trying to catch that goes south. The idea from there was to cross the equator and try to go by um, Easter Island, which Easter Island is quite far offshore. But the easterly trade winds that are near the equator. Now, in the Pacific, it's a pretty wide band of trade winds. It goes on for thousands of miles. These are great wind if you want to sail from, let's say, uh, Southern California to Hawaii, or if you want to go from Mexico to Fiji. These winds will blow you right across the, 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 the ocean. Unfortunately, I was going into those winds instead of utilizing them, and that's called beating into it. Beating into it is horribly uncomfortable. The boat is is heeled over or leaning over kind of at its maximum rate, so the, you're living in a world that's very angled. You know, you can't do anything. You can't put a cup of coffee down. The coffee will go flying across the room, and it's hard on the boat. You know, you're pounding into the seas. And I slowed the boat down to three knots, which is really slow. I mean, it's like three miles an hour. <clears throat> if I went any faster than 3.1, the boat would start pounding into the waves because you're beating, you know, the waves are going the other direction too. So that's opened up a leak below the waterline, which was an old depth sounder transducer. And essentially the boat is sinking at this point slowly but you know it's taking on water and you can't fix it there's nothing you can do it's below the water line there's too much pressure of the water there's no like sealant that's gonna that's gonna work and the bilge pumps had broken the automatic bilge pump and the manual bilge pump i don't know what happened to the manual one but they both were broken so for the last i don't know sixteen thousand miles or so i had to bail my boat out with an empty can of corn and a three gallon bucket because the, the sump in the bilge of that boat is so small, the only thing that would fit in there was the empty can of corn. And then you'd have a three-gallon bucket, and you'd you know scoop it out, you'd fill the bucket, then you'd dump the bucket in the cockpit and repeat the process. And every, you know, whatever, six hours, eight hours, you would, you would do it again. And that went on for the entire duration of the trip. Now, those winds, 
as you get further south, not just become east, but they become southeast, which is even worse. Because now the wind is coming out of the exact place you're trying to get to, in my case, Cape Horn. So they pushed me so far across the Pacific Ocean that I actually went through the Pitcairn Island chain, the very extreme edge of the Pitcairn Island, went by Ducey Island, which is the last island in the chain. And I was actually 200 miles closer to New Zealand than I was to Cape Horn. But you pop through those trade winds, you wind up in something called the Roaring Forties. The latitudes in the south part of our planet have nicknames. This does not exist in the north of our planet. So in the south, you have Roaring Forties, you got Furious Fifties. These nicknames are there for a good reason. You know, the, the bottom of our planet does not have the land mass that the, the top of our planet has. So the southern half of our planet, the ocean is much bigger, much wider, and the storms become much bigger. So yeah, it was, um, it was, it was difficult to say the least. But, but yeah, that 10,000 miles roughly, uh, I was more or less in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. As I, you know, as I went further south, I got pushed more and more across it. So I was nowhere near land. And then once you get into the westerlies, these roaring 40s, furious 50s, these winds are blowing out of the west, which then blows you towards Cape Horn. So now you got like a conveyor belt pushing you to Cape. Sometimes you got more wind than you know what to do with. But once you get far enough south, the wind turns and starts pushing you in the right direction. And then the South Atlantic was similar. I almost got, I got within like 300 miles of South Georgia Island where Shackleton died. Instead of rounding Cape Horn and going straight up the coast, I rounded Cape Horn and I kept going west until I was near the middle of the South Atlantic in between Africa and and South America because the wind... Uh, it's going to be a much better direction if I stayed in the middle. If I stayed near the coast, it was going to be on my nose. It was going to be headwinds, and I didn't want any more headwinds. So I actually purposely stayed out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. A freighter actually, uh, down when I was in that region, thought I was an abandoned ship and came over to check me out. I didn't sleep very good the night before, and I don't know why. It was one of those nights where I'm just tops in, you know, rolling around in my bunk and the sun started to come up, and as the sun came up, I fell asleep, and I had this dream that I was on this big, like, mega yacht with uh, Kira Knightley, the actress who was in all the, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and she was wearing this red dress, and she looked gorgeous, and she handed me a glass of wine, and she told me she loved me, and, and she, you know, I was about to kiss her. Like, I leaned in to kiss her, and she opens her mouth, and this, like, honking noise comes out of her mouth. I'm like, what the heck is this? And I, I wake up. Well, it's a freighter honking at me, and I go outside, and this freighter, I'm like in a pair of underwear too, you know, I'm not wearing much, and this freighter is like right next to me, they're all looking down at me, I'm looking up at it, I get on the VHF, because I want to call the freighter and like thank them, like it's really weird for a freighter to go out of their way to help a boat like that, so I go to get the VHF, I turn it on, and like I said, the, the VHF was broken, that's when I discovered it was broken, and so I'm like, oh man, I can't even talk to these guys. They must have thought I was a real weirdo for not talking to them. So I go out in the cockpit and I wave at them, you know. Then I go back down below and they they turn, you know, they start going away. And the the name of the freighter was Yasa Team, Y-A-S-A Team. Uh, I never forgot that because I really thought it was nice of them for, for, although they ruined my dream. I was about to kiss Kira Knightley. I don't know, that would have been nice. But yeah, so a lot of this trip, generally speaking, I was in the middle of the ocean. And if you look at the actual route, 
is quite different than the routes you might see on like a poster or something where it looks like I'm quite close to the coast. The actual route, I was especially in the southern half of the planet. I was way, way out in the ocean. But, like you know, the Northwest Passage, obviously, you're right there. You can see land. And that is a problem. You know, it's typically not the waves that are going to get you. It's all the sharp, pointy rocks that are on the, uh, that are on the uh, you know, the coastlines. Ocean navigation, like open ocean navigation, you can be off by 100 miles. Like, what does it matter? You're in the middle of the ocean. 100 miles is nothing. But 100 miles in the Northwest Passage, you've run aground. Yeah, you're now sitting, uh, you're shipwrecked, and a polar bear is going to come along and eat you or something. So uh, there's definitely easier aspects of open ocean sailing. And some people obviously could get freaked out. Growing up as a kid, being alone in the water was one of my greatest fears. Like, I, I, I couldn't, like, swim in a swimming pool by myself. I always thought a shark was going to eat me or something. Even though I'm in a swimming pool, and there's no sharks in a swimming pool. I just... You know, my imagination was too... I didn't like taking baths in a bathtub. I thought something was in the water was going to get me. Uh, I, I I obviously was able to get over those fears. But, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if the water is too deep to stand up in with your head popping out of the water, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, if the water is 10 feet deep or 10,000 feet deep, I mean, either way, you can't stand up in it. You know, either way, you're going to be treading water until you run out of, you know, run out of energy. So what does it matter? And, you know, the further you are from land, the better off you are. And I had that attitude that the ocean was my home. The land wasn't my home. So what in the world do I want to be near land for? Like, keep land as far away from me as possible. When you found yourself alone, once you got back, what was your feelings at that moment? Getting back was really chaotic in certain ways. I'd been alone for a long time. And the trip had kind of taken on a life of its own. You know, when I left, there was only one person at the dock waving goodbye to me, which was fine. I mean, that's, you know, that that, that wasn't a problem. But, you know, it was, I sailed out of Annapolis there, like any boat going for a day sail. Like not a single boat out there knew that I was leaving to do this trip. You know, it was very much uh, under the radar sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I was told that, you know, this this thing had become quite big and that there were going to be a lot of people there. And, you know, it's a bit nerve. I didn't sleep well the night before. I actually tried to turn my tracker off because I had some friends in Annapolis that I thought might come out in the anchor, you know, come out and find me. And I didn't want them to do it because uh, I had to get on stage the next day. I could drop an anchor by this point because the trip was basically finished. I just going to make landfall in Annapolis. So I dropped an anchor in Lake Ogleton, which is a lake right there in Annapolis. And I didn't unplug my tracking device fast enough. And at one in the morning, I'm rolling around trying to sleep. And I hear these people yelling, and I'm like, oh my god, they found me. So they ended up tying off to my boat, and we were drinking and partying until basically the sun came up. And then they left, and now I've got to, like, make landfall. So and around noon, I was supposed to do it at noon, exactly. So I went out, and I hove to, which is kind of like, you know, stopping a boat under sail. Came in at noon. I hadn't slept the night before. I was probably still half buzzed from drinking all night with these guys, and which probably helped, honestly. And it was like an out-of-body experience. You know, you're on stage, there's hundreds of people looking at you, you're looking at them, there's cameras looking at you, you're looking at them. The governor is there, and the mayor, and you've never met these people before, you know, and, and but you're honored, you're honored, they're there. And uh, then you're on stage, this guy Gary Jobson, who won uh, several America's Cups, he was Ted Turner's tactician, which is a whole lot of tease. But uh, he's kind of a famous sailor, he was asking me questions, you know, and we hadn't planned any of this. I, I did a pretty good job answering it. 
But it was a whirlwind. Someone handed me a beer and I drank it. I probably didn't even taste it. Someone handed me ribs. They're like, what's your first meal? And I was like, I, I want some ribs. And I don't remember even tasting the ribs. There was, I was surrounded by, I wasn't even sitting when I ate them. Like I was standing there eating with people all around me. The only thing that really, on that particular day, they rented this thing near Annapolis. Um, what the heck is it called? Well, it's a little building restaurant right next to where I made landfall. And so I'm in there and I eat ribs. My hands, you know, get barbecue sauce on them. I go into the bathroom and that was the first moment. Now, partially because I was alone in the bathroom, probably, that I could kind of digest it. But I went to turn the water on to wash my hands and I had not had running water in over 300 days. I Every time you want a glass of water, you got to pump a water maker it doesn't happen quickly. It's like a little dribble comes out of this water maker. You know, you pump it about 1500 times a day to make a gallon. So I just sat there and turned the faucet on and turned it off and turned it on and turned it off. And I just had this like moment for like five minutes where I'm like, oh my God, I have running water again. This is so amazing. And I, that was the first moment alone though, uh, where it sort of hit me. My dad got me a hotel room for a couple of days. Uh, it was a nice little room. People were kind of showering me with bottles of very, you know, Lava Gulen and very nice bottles of scotch. So I had lots of bottles of scotch. Basically, I did a lot of drinking and eating uh, for the next couple and long showers. I just sit in the shower, sit on the floor in the shower for like an hour, just, ah, you know, just living it up. It's easy, at least for me, it was easy to adjust to a much easier situation. You know, fresh food, running water, laundry, clean clothing, hot showers, there's some girls you could try to talk to. There's some, you know, whatever. Like, they, there's all these, the the benefits of, of life on land. I did go to New York City a couple of days after I got back. I was on the Al Roker, had a TV show on the Weather Channel, and, and that was weird. You know, I'd only been back 48 hours. I hadn't adjusted to even sleeping. Like, I still couldn't sleep at night because I was used to that weird schedule where you only sleep for like 45 minutes at a time. And now you're in New York, you're in Manhattan, and there's like people living on top of people, on top of people, people everywhere. And that was like, that was uh, overwhelming. But I was only there for the TV show. You know, I was there for, for a day and then I, I left. But yeah, eventually, you know, I, I thought about starting the nonprofit before I got back. And one of my last blogs I had put out, part of it was talking about creating a nonprofit. I had created three goals when I was 19. And the first goal was to go to Southeast Asia I built a library there once when I was 18. I got a scholarship to build a library in Thailand. I went there, northern Thailand, built the library. I wanted to return to Southeast Asia outside of, I was in a program when I built this library and I was on best behavior and all the rest, which is great, but I wanted to kind of come back on my own with, you know, and, and do it kind of in a wilder way and, and not be in a program. So anyways, goal one. Go to Southeast Asia, which I did with a bicycle with a Schwinn. I had a piece of junk Schwinn, like Walmart bicycle. And that's what I rode through uh, Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand. The second goal was across the Atlantic as a captain, either alone. I, I was going to do it with a girlfriend, actually. Uh, and the girlfriend decided she didn't want to do it a few months before I left. And she gave me the ultimatum. Basically, it's me or the boat. So I did it without her. But I didn't plan necessarily on doing it alone. It just turned out that way. And just like biking alone through Southeast Asia, I didn't necessarily have to be alone. I just didn't know anybody who wanted to bike through Southeast Asia. So I just said, well, all right, I guess I'm just going to do it alone. And I'm happy I did. 
that was a, a wonderful trip. And being alone, you really it forces you to spend a lot of time with the locals when you're when you're out there alone. That's the beauty of traveling alone, generally speaking. It's a double-edged sword because you're actually a lonely a decent amount of the time because you got no one to talk to and you got no friends. And you might not even speak the language in the country you're in. But when you have these experiences where the local populations basically adopt you and take you in like a family member, and you get these beautiful situations, uh, cultural situations, uh, that are just phenomenal. It's all that, That's what traveling's all about for me when I travel in a more normal way, obviously not alone around the Americas. So anyways, the third goal uh, was to start a nonprofit. And I basically had been working on those goals since I was 19, and they've kind of helped keep me together because, you know, it helped keep me out of trouble. If I got a goal I could focus on, the next expedition, you know, sort of thing, then that's what I do. I put all my time and energy into that goal, and it keeps me out of trouble. And uh, then you do the next trip, and you come back, and you start all over again. Do the next trip. Let's talk about that, because I think it's great stuff. It's interesting stuff. What do you plan to do with the nonprofit going forward? Yeah, I mean, I've had some some crazy crazy expeditions with the nonprofit and I've had some near death situations happen that are just as bad if not worse than anything going around the Americas. But uh, so I get back and I I create an ocean research nonprofit that uh, does everything from a sailboat uh, with a basic idea that a sailboat can operate at a fraction of the traditional cost with a fraction of the environmental input. Uh, if you think about a normal research vessel, uh, they cost, on average, uh, globally, they're about $50,000 a day to run one of those boats. Now, that's cheaper. In the Arctic, they can be up, like the Odin is a, a Scandinavian one. They, that costs 500000 a half a million every single day. Ours, the Sekuliak, it's the U.S. one that operates up in Alaska, that thing's about 100000 a day. So it's very expensive, particularly in these remote regions. Now, the Sekuliak, our research vessel for our United States, burns 2,000 gallons of diesel every single day. So the technology needed to do scientific research has gotten smaller and less power-hungry, just like computers used to take up a room, and now we got them in our, you know, our pocket in a, in a smartphone. So the same things happen with scientific technology. We could do research on a sailboat today, we never could have done 20 years ago. And imagine 20 years from now, particularly when we integrate the fully autonomous aerial and underwater data collecting robots, the, the autonomous vehicles. These are taking a larger and larger role in the scientific community. And a sailboat is a good platform. So anyways, that was kind of the, the idea. It's proving that a sailboat can be a legitimate professional data collection platform at a fraction of the cost, fraction of the, the environmental impact. But we had no money. And yeah, okay, so I come back from a trip around the Americas, good, great, glorious, and all the rest. But it doesn't mean that people are all of a sudden throwing money at you. You know, it was interesting to those people who are, you know, into that sort of niche. I mean, it's a niche within a niche. Sailing is a niche within the United States. And this is like a niche within that niche, long-distance, single-handed sailing. So I started a nonprofit and went through the process, got a 501c3 uh, from the IRS about six months. It took, you know, it takes months to, to create a nonprofit. You got to file all this paperwork and get lawyers and accountants. I got a 42-foot steel schooner uh, that was completely rusted out and uh, the wood was rotten. It, it needed a ton of work, but I didn't have any money. 
You know, I came back from the trip around the Americas. I had $30 and that was it. I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have a credit card. I had 30 bucks. And that $30 was all moldy and funky from the Arctic and the trip. And I bought some beer with it, basically. And that was basically the end of that 30 bucks. But I didn't have much money. So I basically borrowed as much as I could and, you know, kind of got together and got this old, rusted, rotten boat. And then I rebuilt it uh, that winter. I ripped it off, ripped the deck off or rebuilt the whole deck, did a bunch of welding on it. I had to put a bunch of patches on it, eight, eight patches below the waterline. It's terrible. I ultimately wanted to get back to the Arctic and I wanted to do climate research up there. But the equipment involved in that, like this year we were in Greenland, we had a half million dollars worth of scientific equipment on the boat. And it took years and years and years for us to get to that point. So back then we had no, no money. Now, when I was going around the Americas, I did a decent amount of fishing. And you can imagine, maybe it's six o'clock or five o'clock, six o'clock, you know, the sun is starting to go down a little bit. You're sailing along, you're dragging a couple fishing lines. You don't really feel like eating freeze-dried food for the 10 millionth time. And you hear your the the reel on your on your fishing rod start to, to start to go out. That sound. You're like, oh my God, I got a fish. And you're running out there and you grab the rod and you start reeling it in a little bit. And it's heavy, but it's not fighting. But but it's heavy. It's okay. There's something on there. And you get it closer and closer and you realize that you've hooked a big plastic bag or some piece of plastic trash. I caught trash probably 10 to 1 versus fish. So I mostly what I did is catch trash. <laughs> so it, it bothers you. It pisses you off. You're like, what the hell? We're, we're trashing our oceans. And at the time, uh, 2000, this is now 2013, uh, the eastern half of the Atlantic garbage patch. Now, the garbage patch that we, we is the most famous is the Pacific garbage patch. This is the one people talk about. is twice the size of Texas. There are technically five of them. There are five gyres in our Earth's ocean. A gyre is a large area of slow-moving circular currents, kind of like a giant vortex, and they're massive. And, uh, and often the center of these are associated with high pressure systems, which means a doldrum. In the center of them, typically there's very light winds. So if trash winds up in the ocean, they wind up in these areas, they get sucked in slowly and create these garbage patches. There's one in the North Atlantic, South Atlantic, North Pacific, South Pacific, and one in the Indian Ocean. So the North Atlantic and North Pacific are the worst because there's more civilization in that northern part of the planet. So anyways, the one in the Atlantic is massive too. It's like the Pacific, the Atlantic garbage patch, the North Atlantic. And nobody had mapped the eastern half of the garbage patch to figure out how much plastic trash is there. There is no such thing as an island of garbage in the ocean. That's an old wives' tale. That's a myth. That doesn't exist. It's more like soup. The plastic gets broken down into smaller and smaller pieces until it's about the size of your fingernail, uh, just from the churning motion of storms and everything that kind of, you know, breaks the, the plastic up. So it's more like a soup than an island, and it's a lot easier to clean it if it was an island. You know, if it's an island, show up there with a freighter and, I don't know, grab it somehow. But when it's a soup, it's integrated into the ocean. So anyways, 2013, we went out, we spent, me and a scientist spent 70 days in the Atlantic, mapping the eastern half of this garbage patch to figure out the density, how much plastic per square kilometer 
which is roughly, if I remember correct, around 160,000 pieces per square kilometer in the, in the highest areas. And yeah, we found an abandoned ship in the middle of this garbage patch, which is a Swan 48, which is a very, very, very expensive, very nice boat, but it was damaged and we tried to drag it back to Bermuda. This was at the end. We had just wrapped our, our research up two days previous and we're trying to get back to the States and we find this thing. And we're thinking if we can get it to Bermuda, then we could get salvage rights on it and that would be worth some money for we get, for the nonprofit. You know, we might, I don't know, raise 50 or 100 grand or whatever it is. And I ended up finding the owner's information, calling them up. We kind of made a deal ahead of time. But anyways, uh, we drug it for five days. It ended up, uh, we were running out of fuel because we had been in the ocean for like 50 some days at this point. And we were in a doldrum, you know, a lot of the time in light winds. So uh, we see this freighter. And I, I try to call the freighter to see if we can get diesel off the freighter. Now, freighters run off of something called bunker, which is like a really dirty fuel. But they do have diesel for their uh, backup generators. They do use diesel for some things. So at first, they said they weren't going to do it. And then they see I'm dragging. This boat is bigger and heavier than my boat. And we're in the middle. We're like 800 miles from Bermuda at the time. We're in the middle of the Atlantic, 800 miles east of Bermuda, like way, way out there. And so... um they finally, they say, sure. Then they said they'll only give us like, I don't know, 10 gallons or something. And then the scientist uh, was a very attractive girl and they see her and they say, no, no, they're giving us 50, which is what we asked for originally. But um, we're up, we're up against the side of this boat, right? You go right next to this freighter. And again, it's this giant wall of steel, you know, right next to you. And they throw a line down to you and you're like trying to shimmy jerry jugs full of diesel down this line. It took hours and hours to do it. And it was very nerve-wracking, so I'm trying not to... I'm still pulling this boat behind me, you know, and I'm trying not to, like, slam into the side of this hull with the wave action. It was very, very difficult. Anyways, that happens. The freighter leaves. We got our fuel. We got 50 gallons. We got enough. We're going to be able to get to Bermuda, you know. And, uh, well, the fuel was bad. And I couldn't tell you exactly what was wrong with it, but it ended up breaking our injector pump. So I poured it in the, in the tank. I go to take a nap because I'm just exhausted, and I wake up with the with the RPM acting, just jumping all over the place. I hit the throttle just a little bit, and, it, and it, the engine dies. And that's the end of the injector pump. Now, you can jury-rig quite a few things on a marine diesel, and an injector pump is not one of them. It has got a million little parts in it. So we tried to tow the boat for another couple of days, and then a, a storm picked up. There, all sorts of crazy things happen. Like, at one point, I got drugged behind the boat, I found it. I, I all we had was a little kayak because we we weren't going to land. This was a this was another non. So you know we're going out to map part of this garbage patch. What do we need like a an inflatable dinghy for? We're not going to land. Like going around the Americas, I didn't have a dinghy because I wasn't going to land. Like what do I what do I need that for? So we did have a little kayak. We would use in the open ocean in the doldrums. We would go for kayak trips sometimes. It, it's kind of funny. You're in sixteen thousand feet of water in the middle of the ocean. Your little plastic kayak. But it was nice to get off the boat and get the exercise when it was flat, calm condition. You just hope a shark doesn't come along and, you know, eat the kayak or something. But anyways, I, I've taken this kayak over to the boat. And you, you get next to this boat. And the freeboard, you know, the side of the boat went up like four feet. There's no good way to get on the boat. So at one point, I flipped the kayak. And I'm, I grabbed the very back of the boat. And I got the kayak in the other hand. And I'm getting drugged behind the boat trying to, you know, not lose the kayak. I found a, an inflatable dinghy, a Zodiac a company, this uh, inflatable boat. And uh, I'm like, great, we got a dinghy, you know? I mean, the heat, nobody's going to miss it. This is an abandoned ship. 
So we fill it up, we put it in the water. I brought a battery with me to try to start the engine on this boat because I knew the batteries were going to be shot. And it's a big, heavy 100-pound battery. And I had like a six-foot rope attached to the battery to raise it and lower it in and out of the kayak, or now the dinghy. And I put some other things. We had run out of sugar. I found some sugar on this boat. Uh, I found a bottle of rum on this boat. I found some tools, you know, basic tools. So we're like, all right. So, you know, I kind of found a few things on there, put it in the dinghy. I'm rowing back to, to the boat and the floor gave out. I've never seen anything like it. The floor gave out on this dinghy and the battery shot to the bottom of the ocean. And that six foot line wrapped around my leg for a split second. And so you're just rowing along and you don't expect it. All of a sudden you get, feel this really strong tug on your leg and it rips, ripped me off my seat and starts pulling me like through the floor through this rip in the dinghy. Luckily, the line wrapped around me, but not, it like wrapped around me, then unwrapped, you know, like it, it worked its way off. Had it wrapped around me and stayed wrapped, it would have sucked me to the bottom of the ocean and I wouldn't even have known what happened. I'd have been so confused, like what is even happening here? So yeah, and a couple days later, uh, we ended up having to cut the boat free because the winds and waves are picking up. The scientist I was with was was done. She was done with that boat. It turned around backwards at one point. The line got wrapped around the keel. We're dragging it backwards. At one point, it rams us. The wind dies. Our boat stops. It was like a like a zombie at that point. It just kept coming and coming. We're like, how is this thing still coming? Like the wind is dead and our boat stopped moving. And it hits us and dents our, our steel hull. I mean, when I, when I sold the boat, the dent was still there. Uh, it, if we were a fiberglass boat, it probably would have cracked the hull. So anyways, we cut this thing free and the storm dies. Now we have a broken engine. Uh, and we have no wind. So we got stuck in the doldrums for 24 days. It took us 24 days to do 500 miles. It should have taken us four days. It took us 24. And we became plastic trash floating in the ocean, basically. We became a large piece of floatsome. I mean, we're made of metal. We're not made of plastic. So we end up getting into Bermuda, get pulled in by a pilot ship, tie off, and I get a new injection pump flown into Bermuda. I switch out the injection pumps, and we, we motor back to the United States. Yeah, the next year we sailed from San Francisco to Yokohama, Japan, nonstop on a 29-foot day sailor that I had to build in 23 days, which was not the way it was supposed to happen. So we get, and we want to do some research in the Pacific garbage patch. I don't have a boat in the Pacific. So I'm at a boat show in Annapolis. Annapolis has the biggest, best boat show in the whole country in the fall. I'm walking around and and, and uh, I was with this guy and, and we go in and this, these people have these 25-foot day sailors. And they make a 30-foot one. And, and the whole idea is a it's kind of like a gentleman's day sailor. And they're they're in competition with another company that has a lot of really good woodwork. So they're a little cheaper because they don't have the woodwork. But you know, they're expensive. So like the 30-footer was two hundred and twenty thousand for a thirty for a brand new 30-footer. You know, I mean they're they're not cheap boats. Anyways, I start joking around with this guy. He says, Hey, you should have sailed my 25-footer around the Americas, because he knows, you know, he recognized me. And I was like, you better watch what you say. I might take you up on it. So I call him up like a couple weeks later. I said, well, hey, I'm, I'm not going around the Americas, but why don't you let me take that one of your 25 footers uh, across the ocean to Japan? This time with the trade winds that I talked about, I had to beat into those trade winds going around the Americas. This time the trade winds are going the right direction. And I was able to, to use them. And uh, he said, well, look, our, our, nobody's buying our 30 foot boat because it's 220,000. We're going to make a stripped down version of it and call it the Harbor 29. And it's basically a, a giant stripped down day sailor. Why don't you take that across the Pacific? And we'll use it as promotion for our new sailboat. Like it, 
They called it a harbor because the designer didn't want you to take it out of the harbor. That is literally why it's called a harbor. So I thought it would be hilarious to take it across the Pacific. It had some really good traits. Uh, it had uh, a, a very deep, it had six foot three draft. It was it, The fin was very deep. And it had 45% of the weight of the vessel in a bulb at the bottom of that fin. Those are unheard of for a modern boat. So that's great. And there's a, something called a parachute sea anchor, which I use going around the Americas a bunch of times. And you can put it out the front of your boat. It's like a parachute. And you put it in front of your boat. And what it does is it kind of stops your boat where you drift backwards very slowly. And the waves will break over the front of your boat in a big storm. And the front of your boat is made to break waves. It's a storm tactic to deploy one of these. So I could have used a parachute sea anchor with this boat because it had the deep draft and it had that lever arm deep in the water that if the boat rolled upside down, it would roll back over quickly. I felt that using that tactic, it would have been safe, you know, in a storm. So we had a basic strategy. I show up April 1st, 2014 with a scientist. The boat is supposed to be ready. We're supposed to leave on the 12th of April. And it's April Fool's Day, and I show up, and the, and the main guy who owns the company picks me and the scientists up from the airport, and we drive to the factory, and he's like, well, I got something to tell you. And I was like, all right. And he's like, well, the boat's, the boat's not done yet. I'm like, oh, okay. What does that mean? And, and I look, and I get to the factory. It is just a, a hull. It, it's, it's still in the mold. When you make a sailboat or a powerboat, there's a mold, and you, you put, make the hull first which means it doesn't have a deck, it doesn't have a mast, it doesn't have an interior, it doesn't have uh, a rudder, it doesn't have a keel, it doesn't have anything. It's just a hull. It doesn't have bulkheads, there's no wiring, there's no plumbing, there's no engine, there's no sails, there's nothing. So I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to become the biggest volunteer for this company ever. And I basically spent 16-hour days in the factory building this boat. I didn't get paid a penny to do it, but we needed the boat for the expedition, and I had gotten a little bit of funding, not much, but I did get a small grant for 6000 bucks. And I had told people I was going to do this. So if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And so I just had to roll up my sleeves and make it happen. I told the scientists, like, this is crazy, man. Like, you shouldn't go on this trip. Like, this is not how you do it. This is, this is just nuts. Uh, and, the, and then the scientists got mad. They're like, of course I'm going. Like, you know, I'm like, all right, well, you know, I did warn you. Now, every day that I was at the factory working, more and more other workers started helping. They all spoke Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. They don't speak English. But we still were able to work together. Uh, The only mistake I made in that process, these guys have been doing uh, fiberglass work for so long, which is like grinding and fitting and grinding. And it puts like this dust of fiberglass everywhere. And I didn't wear a suit. It's called a Tyvek suit because these guys weren't wearing suits. I'm not going to be the gringo in a freaking suit if they're not wearing it, you know? So I, I was like them, and uh, it was like having poison ivy. Like, I would go home, and I'd, I'd stand in a cold shower. Well, I went to a hotel room, but I'd stand in a cold shower just, like, itching like crazy. But I just couldn't, my stupid, like, macho machismo sort of, you know, I, I just couldn't be the guy in the suit. So I just put up with it. But we built it after 20, it normally takes 12 weeks to build the boat at that stage. We built it in 23 days. And then we sailed it across the Pacific Ocean. That was our sea trial. You know, we hadn't really sailed the boat. And we we sailed, we left as a storm was coming into San Francisco. We left out of San Francisco. I knew there was going to be a storm 
that night. And I did that on purpose because if the boat was going to break, it was going to break in that storm. And we were still close enough to land that with this little diesel engine, we didn't have a lot of fuel. We only had 15 gallons of fuel on that trip. But that would have been enough for me to turn around and motor back into land, even if I lost my rig. I still would have been able to get back. So we purposely kept the boat near land, you know, in the storm, just to see if the boat would, how it would, and it made it. I mean, it, it got knocked around, but it made it through this. And at that point, I'm like, all right, well, it's like, you know, we broke in the new pair of boots, you know, let's let's head to Japan. So we did. It took us 64 days. Uh, and again, living off of freeze-dried food, using a manual water maker, all this very similar to trip around the Americas type stuff, but with a bigger, much faster boat that had a working AIS, so I didn't, you know, almost get hit by freighters. And so it continued. 2015, we started going up to the Arctic. We got within 800 miles of the North Pole. Uh, we went up to about almost 80. We went to 78 and a half north. Uh, it's as far north as you can get before the ice stops. I mean, I would sail all the way to the North Pole if I could, but you know, there's ice up there. Uh, and we were working, we spent two years working with a NASA group called Ocean Melting Greenland. And they're studying a warmer, saltier water column that comes up from the Atlantic and eats Greenland's glaciers from underneath. In order to know where this water is, it's about 300 meters down. You have to have a continuous depth of 300 meters from the open ocean to the glacier face itself. In order to know that, someone's got to map it. So one of the things we're doing, we're mapping uncharted areas. And then we're also lowering this probe uh, called a CTD, conductivity, temperature, and depth, that will actually show the spike of temperature and salinity within that water column to prove its existence and know how bad it is. So we mapped about 2,500 miles of uncharted area for NASA in 2015 and 16. And we did some projects with the Smithsonian also, but uh, an ocean acidification project. They have a place near Annapolis called Cirque, which is their sort of res the research branch of the Smithsonian. Now, this sounds really nice. I'm using words like NASA and the Smithsonian. I mean, geez, we must be really well funded. Well, we weren't. 2015, we didn't get a penny from them because we had to work for an entire year for free before they would even you know believe in us to uh, contract us the next year. And that's the, that's the reality. Sailboat research is becoming slowly more acceptable in the scientific community. But a lot of them, particularly at this time, looked at it as you're just going on a sailing adventure. I'm not going to pay for your sailing adventure. Like, you know, this isn't going to be real science. And so we had a real scientist on board. It was just me and the scientist. But we ended up doing a great job 2015. And we impressed them. We actually got... The uh, director of NASA gave us both like an award. This thing showed up in mail, you know, signed by the director for our, I don't know, whatever, going above and beyond, blah, blah, blah. So like, wow, I guess we're going to get contracted. 2016, we did get a contract, but we ended up breaking even. We didn't make any money. You basically got paid like a farmer. Like, in other words, you got to grow the crops. And if there's a drought or a flood, you don't get paid. We didn't get any money ahead of time. It all came at the end upon deliverables, you know, is the term. We had to give them the data before we got the money. So we had no money to do the trip and we couldn't get a single grant in 2016. We went to every foundation in Washington, D.C. I mean, we're not far from D.C. in Annapolis. Nobody would give us any funding, you know, and we I've got whatever history I've got with 
sailing around Americas, doing stuff in the Atlantic. We had just come back 2015 from a successful expedition doing this research. You'd think that people would fund you in 2016. And climate change, well, climate change, climate change. I mean, people talk a lot about it, right? And all these foundations are all about how we support climate change, this, that, and the other. We couldn't get any of them to support us. So I ended up having to take out a loan for 9000 bucks uh, to cover costs. We were basically broke. We had a, uh, I almost had a mutiny over a loaf of bread. I had crew. That was our first trip. We had, we had more than just me and a scientist. And we were so broke at one point, I couldn't afford to buy a loaf of bread. And this crew member got all mad thinking I was being a cheapskate because we were living off of like rice and pasta and stuff. And it's like, dude, I, you know, and we almost came to blows. Like I almost got in a fight with this guy on a beach in Greenland. It's like some rocky beach over a loaf of bread. Now, my boat has a bread machine now, by the way, so you can make all the loaves of bread you want, but it was still really, really difficult. 2016 is, uh, we had a bad storm, probably one of the closest I've come to dying, including the trip around the Americas, and uh, it was supposed to blow 25 knots, and we were up at, eight, we were at 78 north, we were mapping an area half the size of the Chesapeake Bay, it took us about six weeks, and it was continuing. Anyways, supposed to blow 25 miles an hour, roughly, and it blows 100 miles an hour. It blows a hurricane and you're surrounded by ice and rocks and it's like uncharted waters that you've been in the process of trying to map and everything just goes to hell basically. And we're trying to survive. And then my first mate, the same guy I almost got into a fight with over a loaf of bread, he panics and he's trying to get into life raft and he's getting into what we call a Gumby suit. It's an immersion suit. And once you get into this like immersion suit, you're like, you look like Gumby. And you you can't do anything. You know, it's got like a couple of fingers and a mitt. Like you couldn't grab it. You're basically useless when you get in one of these. All you can do is sit in a life raft. So he gets into his. He gets the camera. We had a cameraman that year who's one of our crew. He gets, that guy's puking in his hat. He's got his beanie and he's just puking in his beanie. And just out of fear. You know, it wasn't out of seasickness. Now what happened with that, that, that guy, the first mate who's panicking? Most people don't experience the situation where they're like, oh my God, I might die. Oh my God, I might die today. Oh my God, I might die in the next 20 minutes. Everybody reacts differently. You know, it's kind of like what, you know, if you throw a bunch of people into a battle, you know, how are they going to, you know, some soldiers are going to panic. Some soldiers are going to charge towards the enemy. Well, he panicked. So I almost had to fight him again. And he was younger than me. He was bigger than me. The guy was shredded. He had a six pack. He was muscular. He had martial arts experience. I mean, the guy would have kicked my butt, you know, but the power of just a personality, I guess, you know, I was able to to yell enough and be like, we are not abandoning ship. We are not going to, we're going to fight. You get in your foul weather gear, get out that Gumby suit. Nobody's getting in. If they got in the life raft, they would have died because there was icebergs all around us. And if it's going to destroy a steel boat, an iceberg or a, a little rubber raft is not going to do. And the water is cold. I mean, the water is like, you know, 34 degrees. You'll get hypothermia if you fall in. In like five minutes, you're going to die. But he wasn't, he was panicking. Eventually, you know, I, I got in his face screaming at him and everybody else. I calmed the situation down. I got him to go down below and, and we got through it just barely. But it, it got bad. At one point, a line wrapped around our propeller and I was driving the ship trying not to hit this giant wall of rocks that was right next to us that the wind was pushing us into. And this line wraps around the prop. Now we're dead in the water. The wind's blowing so hard, you can't even put a sail up. And this giant iceberg was right behind us. And we were going to get thrown into this iceberg. And I just barely, barely, barely 
got us to miss this berg, which would have killed us all. So yeah, climate research, you know. <laughs> but we got back. I, I that guy was broken. It was that was an interesting part of it, uh, kind of like a human nature part, is that that storm broke both of those guys. Now the scientist was female on this trip, and the scientist was not broken. She sailed back down with me. She, you know, we all were shaken up badly. But after a couple of days, you know, you kind of you kind of get over it. These two guys never got over it. So I actually had to fly the, the first mate back, but it, he was a completely shattered individual. So I had to fly him off immediately. The cameraman ended up going AWOL. Basically, the next port we stopped at, he, he banded the ship. He was convinced that we were going to die going to sailing back down to America. Of course, I was like, of course, we're going to be fine, dude. Like, the boat's fine. The storm is over. It's okay. But he was broken. I had to fly a guy in from America to replace these two guys. It was just one guy. And then me, this guy, and the scientist sailed back. Well, we got back 2016, and the boat was pretty rough. Luckily, we got back before the engine broke. But the engine did end up breaking maybe a month after I got back. And I needed a better boat, and the boat was just shot. It wasn't the right boat. So 2017, I sold it, and that was a low point in the nonprofit because it's like, here we are, we've done all these expeditions, and we still can't get any funding, we can't really get any support, we don't even have a boat anymore, uh, but I, I, I never gave up on it, I just kept pushing. I worked as a yacht broker for a bit to try to make some money with just selling boats because I, I needed something to keep me going. I was doing a podcast at, at the Toronto Boat Show. Anyways, I was there doing some talks, doing some seminars, doing this podcast, and I started talking about how a 65-foot Bruce Roberts, which is a steel boat, would be a great research vessel because they're, they're slow, but they're big tubby tanks, right? They're just a big tank of a boat. And uh, somebody emailed me and said, hey, well, I know a guy with a half-built 65-foot Bruce Roberts who's thinking about donating it. You want to come check it out? I'm like, oh yeah. So it was in Delaware. So I drove to Delaware and I'm thinking it's going to be like uh, a hull with like some water sloshing around in it. You know, I didn't think it would be all that great, but I, I you know, I get in close to it. I'm like, okay, this boat has a deck. This boat has masts. This boat, you know, it has enough. Now it had no interior. It had never been sailed. It had been basically abandoned for 18 years and it needed a huge amount of time and money put into it. But I saw the potential in it. And the owner, it took about six months, but I convinced the owner to donate the boat. He had health issues. He was in his late 70s. Unfortunately, he had a stroke not long after, and he doesn't know, he doesn't even know he has a boat. You know, he lost a lot of his mental facilities, which sucks because I want to, I would love to show him the boat. I spent the next two years, uh, some of it during the pandemic when we were all in quarantine and lockdown, I lived on this boat in the back of a boatyard. I lived in the project. So I'm building an interior. There's sawdust. I mean, if you can imagine doing like a major renovation of your home while living in your home and doing the work yourself. So for two years, I lived in a boat and I built the boat out. I had one woodworker who helped me. We didn't have money to hire people to do stuff. So I had to do most of it myself, but I'd had enough boats by this point. I could do, you know, I'd become quite handy. And uh, yeah, I ended up raising about 175 grand through my own podcast, the Single-Handed Sailing Podcast, and and some through you know other donors. And uh, we've built this boat. I wrapped it up this spring, put her in the water, 
and sailed her to Greenland. We did go to the Northwest Passage in 2018. I did miss that story, but we didn't have a boat in 2018. So I joined, I found a sailboat that was up there and I joined the sailboat with the idea I was going to help them get through the Northwest Passage if they went to the this part on Devon Island. Devon Island is north of Lancaster Sound. Devon Island is the largest uninhabited island on Earth, and it's part of the Northwest Passage, part of the Canadian archipelago. It's so big, it, it has its own ice cap, and so it has its own glaciers. So we went there to research some glaciers. 2018, the ice in the Northwest Passage was so bad that nobody was getting through. You know, the, the cruise ships didn't get through, the big research vessels, sailboats. Um, but we did, we were successful with the research. So anyways, this year, uh, 2022, we went back up there, but with a much bigger, better boat, uh, a team of scientists, and about a half million dollars worth of equipment. And we have a multi-beam sonar instead of a single beam. And now we still map uncharted areas, but with the multi-beam, we could do it in three dimension. Uh, and we do glacier research. Basically, glaciers, as they melt, they create like a river under the glacier. This river is full of sediment because it's the, the glacier is chewing up the land as it moves towards the water. In this sediment, these plumes of sediment are nutrients. And these nutrients are critical for plankton, particularly phytoplankton, for the big blooms of plankton that are very important to the overall ecosystem. I mean, half of our oxygen on Earth comes from phytoplankton. If we lost all the plankton in the ocean tomorrow, everything that breathes oxygen would die, which is pretty much everything. So anyways, we are trying to study the correlation between the melting of the glaciers. And, you know, glaciers are all melting up there pretty much and all becoming land fast, which means they don't have an ice shelf and they're, they're retreating. So as the glaciers retreat and they stop creating this, this nutrient you know, source in the sediment, how is that going to affect the plankton? And so mapping the seafloor is part of understanding where the glaciers were in the last glacial maximum, i.e. the last uh, ice age. And we can get kind of a picture of the history of the glaciers through uh, mapping the seafloor. So we're doing a lot of climate research now, and we're, we'll go back up next year. We're finally getting more funding after a decade of having the most dismal, tiny amounts of funding and doing major international research expeditions on an absolute shoestring on a boat that was half rusted out when I found it, you know. We finally have a proper boat, and it's still hard. I mean, we're still battling for funding. I mean, it, it's not like, you know, I, I get phone calls uh, to this day, and people are surprised that my secretary didn't pick up for the nonprofit. It's like, dude, I can't afford a secretary. Like, you kidding me? Like, <laughs> We got no I haven't been paid a salary in 10 years. Like we don't even got money to pay me a salary. Like I haven't had health insurance in years, which I'm going to be getting soon by the way. I started a Patreon on my podcast just so I could get health insurance and people are starting to give a little bit of money. But yeah, that's that's basically been the the thing and and what we're trying to do in the long run is I want to build a fleet of research ready sailboats. Once we get this boat well solidified of which we're doing you know, the idea that, that that a sailboat can operate at a fraction of the cost and a fraction of environmental impact, to really utilize that in its full, I need to have multiple sailboats, ultimately working in multiple locations, simultaneously collecting data. Some of them can work in tandem. Some of them will work in completely different regions, like coral reefs are being bleached right now. 
Well, that's a different type of research, a climate research. That's research that involves diving. So you need to have dive compressors and dive equipment because, you know, and it's going to be more biological based. So the laboratory has to be more based uh, towards biological research where the laboratory we have right now on the boat is more about physical sampling. You know, we take core samples, water samples, glacial samples, and we take DNA samples up there to see what historically has been in those waters. So anyways, yeah, ultimately I'm trying to build a global fleet of research-ready sailboats that will change the way that research is conducted in the ocean by adding in this new element uh, to what already exists with the big the big boats. And nothing like this exists. There is no such thing as an organization with a fleet of research-ready sailboats. So yeah, you know, I'm still trying to do things that nobody has done, uh, just like the trip around the Americas. But instead of doing it, you know, trying to break a trying to be Amundsen, and I love Amundsen. I love the guy. Absolutely. I mean, what isn't there to love about the guy? But he was all about records, you know, and he said one time, if something has already been done, it's not worth me doing. So he didn't want to do anything unless he could be the first to do it. And yeah, he, Amundsen definitely had his issues, but, you know, and however much I love the guy, I don't want to take that approach. I, I could have just tried to be the first to do this and that, but this organization I've created gives me the ability to fulfill that need for adventure and exploration that's just ingrained into my my bone marrow, but do it in a way where I feel like I'm giving back to the ocean and doing something helpful to, to humanity, basically. And so it's been very positive, and I'm going to do it till I die. I mean, there is no end. The beauty of creating a nonprofit is there's no end. It's like climbing a mountain that you're never going to get to the top of. No matter how long you hike, you'll never get to the top. And that sounds bad, but it's actually wonderful. Because this is a goal that I can do for the rest of my life. And I'll never, even if I build a fleet of boats, if I got 10, well, guess what? I want 12. If I get 12, then let's get 15. You know, we'll never get to the top of this mountain, which is wonderful. And I can do this for the rest of my life. What is the name of your nonprofit? Yeah, that's kind of important. We've got to pitch the organization here. It's called Ocean Research Project. I named it the simplest thing I could think because it's self-explanatory. We do ocean research. So it is Ocean Research Project. You can find it at oceanresearchproject.org. We have Facebook and, and all the rest. I was going to say, so you can go to the website and you can learn all about the different things you've done, learn about the boat and, and your future plans. Am I correct? Yeah, exactly. And we're in the middle of revamping the website. Uh, right now, as I'm doing this interview, I got a guy working on it. Uh, we have videos. We had a cameraman this year. He made 10 videos. They're going to be on YouTube probably in the next month or six weeks. I stopped doing all social media, personal social media in 2019. But the nonprofit obviously needs to have it. So we're starting to really ramp up over the next month. We're going to be ramping up all of our social media. We have a ton of footage, ton of pictures. I got a whole catalog from previous expeditions. And, you know, I, I, I'm i not trying to be Spartacus with some anti-social media revolution. You know, I just don't like it personally, so I don't do it. But it's foolish not to do it for a nonprofit. So really, over this winter, over the next several months, there's going to be a lot of development within the material, both on the website and within our, our Ocean Research Project YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. Uh, and we're really ramping things up. Uh, I got an executive director now. I've never had an exec. I'm the president of the board of directors. I've never had an executive director. So, I mean, the organization is really starting to build a, you know, its own energy and its own uh, momentum. And people can go onto the site if they want to donate as well, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a donate button on the website. Uh, it takes you through a PayPal link, and uh, exactly. Or you can send a check. There's a you know an address on the website. Great. I have one last question, and that is, I was thinking about what you've done, and we can move forward a hundred or five hundred or a thousand years from now, and someone can go onto the equivalent of Wikipedia, whatever that is, and if they say who was the first person to go solo nonstop around the Americas and your name will still be there. What does that feel like? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing is that you can sail around the Americas faster than me. You can be younger than me, older than me. You could do it standing on your head and I will still be the first person to do it. So I created a record. I didn't break a record because I created one. And I guess it's, it's humbling really you know, so much of the history of exploration is failure. I mean, if you look at all these guys who tried to be the first to do this, and first, most of them did not succeed. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to succeed in this uh, because the odds weren't necessarily in my favor doing that trip. So it's really an honor. It's bizarre. It's kind of out of body in some ways to think that I will always be the first person to have circumnavigated the Americas, no matter what happens. And that's also the same with these fjords that we map. We map a fjord, no one will ever map it again. Like once it's mapped in 3D, there's no reason for it. You know, there's, there's no hurricanes up there changing the, the sub, you know, until the next ice age, nobody's going to have to remap them. So every time we map a fjord, it's the same thing. It's like we got a little stamp that we put, a little ocean research project stamp on that fjord. And uh, no matter how long time goes on, we will be the first to have mapped it. I think you don't want to get too hung up as an explorer to try to be the first to do this and first to do that. But I mean, it's, it's kind of ultimate exploration to push the boundaries and do things that nobody thought was possible. Exploration is the physical expression of intellectual passion. So we should never stop exploring. I do have one last thing I want to offer you. And that is you've come from a, as you even, I think self-described yourself or described yourself as like a street punk um, when you're a teen to doing something no one had ever done before and going forward, doing something you think is important and amazing for this world, for the, for the environment. If people ask about what you do, what you've done, where you've came from, what's the takeaways about your life or, or your philosophies or, or anything and just say, this is what I learned or whatever. Yeah. So by the time I was 16, I've been locked up five times and been to rehab twice. So I basically grew up, part of my childhood was in these detention centers and you know, institutions. The person, you know, I had to get to a place in my life where I wanted to make change. You can't force change on people. Like as a parent, if you got a kid that's acting, you know, whatever, getting in trouble and getting locked up or whatever it is, uh, they have to want that change within themselves. And that can happen at different ages for different people. And, it, and for me, it was a progression. It didn't happen all at once, and I did go back into my ways in my early 20s at, at some points. But if you believe in yourself, like the humans, are, our species is just amazing. And I think that explorers are really show that in one of the clearest ways of just how capable we can be through determination and perseverance, that we can accomplish these unbelievable feats, you know, of hardship. You know, I mean, exploration, traditional exploration is often the pursuit of knowledge through mental and physical hardship. And I think that, at least for me, you don't listen to the naysayers. That's how I know I've got a good goal. 
If I tell you my goal and you and you look at me crazy and you roll your eyes and you're like, there's no way that guy's going to make that happen, then I know I'm making a good goal, you know, and it should scare you a bit. Your goals should freak you out a little bit. That's how you know you're pushing the boundaries. So you got to believe in yourself. You got to do your history, you know, study your history, try to study whatever you're trying to do. But at the end of the day, you have to you have to believe that that you are capable and you can't give up. You create a goal, you have to, to be a hundred percent determined. And, uh, for me, I, I make the goal part of my life and that has ups and downs, but it allows me to really focus solely on whatever it is, this, this goal, the next expedition, whatever it is, because my whole life gets wrapped around that, uh, until I can make it happen. So yeah, I'd, mostly I'd, and you know, you, you gotta be careful with fear. Fear is an important thing because fear prevents us from doing stupid things that get us hurt. But fear is also a preventative that can prevent you from anything from asking a girl out on a date to getting a better job to going for a hike somewhere or sailing out in the ocean. You know, on a sailboat, fear becomes panic. Panic becomes injury. Injury becomes loss of life or loss of vessel or both. So it's not about being fearless. I'm not fearless. Shackleton wasn't fearless. You have to be insane, like properly insane to actually be truly fearless. It's about learning how to control your fear. And if you learn how to control your fear, then you could do anything. And, you know, a combination of, of controlling your fear and, and believing in yourself and having the Amundsen version of endless determination, uh, you can accomplish just about anything you set your mind to. That's fantastic. My final question is, I want to ask about the things that you do. I know you have a podcast and a patron. Is there anything else uh, that you want to share, uh, any places? And I do want to point out to the listeners that I'll put this stuff in the show notes and on our website. Oh, yeah. I have a, a podcast called The Single-Handed Sailing Podcast. It is an adult podcast. It's a little bit off the rails, but uh, it's been very helpful for raising money uh, for the nonprofit. And it's just me telling sailing stories and talking about whatever comes into my brain, basically. And um, we have the website for Ocean Research Project, oceanresearchproject.org. Uh, we also have the Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube videos that will be coming out shortly. We already have some, but we're releasing a whole series of videos. Uh, you can support uh, the podcast on Patreon, Single-Handed Sailing Podcast, and the nonprofit also uh, either on the website, oceanresearchproject.org, or on Ocean Research Project's Patreon. And yeah, they, and they made a film about this trip called Red Dot in the Ocean. So check that out. It's on PBS, it's on Amazon Prime, and it's on YouTube. And also, I'm writing a book this winter. I'm heading down to South America randomly. I mean, I, I sailed around South America and I never stopped. So it's like, I should probably go there and visit the place. And so I'm heading down to Colombia in January to, to get away from all this so I can finally write my book so I don't wind up like uh, Meriwether there who uh, did his great trip and never never wrote his book. We have been talking with Matt Rutherford, who is the subject of our last episode, which was the circumnavig solo circumnavigation of the Americas. And I want to thank Matt for all the time he has put in it. This has been an amazing interview. Plus, he has been really generous with answering emails and even helping me edit my script. Uh, so uh, thank you, Matt. It has been wonderful to have you. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. I really appreciate uh, being on your podcast. Thank you. 
You're welcome. So uh, again, for all the people out there, um, I'll put links to all sorts of stuff uh, about Matt, about the Ocean uh, Research Project in the show notes and on our website. And uh, if you haven't, you certainly should listen to uh, the story of his circumnavigation of the Americas. It's a great time. So again, thanks, Matt, for being here. Yep. Thank you. So that is it. My interview with Matt Rutherford. Thanks to Matt for spending so much time with me. Again, all the links to sites related to Matt Rutherford are in our show notes, as well as on our website, explorespodcast.com. So check those out if you want to learn more. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including Ancient History Fangirl and The Art of Crime. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.